Hey, Tim. Yes, Derek. You know, before we get this show going. What? There's a couple rules I have to tell you about this show. Okay, what are they? If you haven't seen Fight Club, you don't want to listen to this show. <laughs> oh, okay. Rule number two is, if you haven't seen Fight Club, don't listen to this show. Or do, if you want, and it's spoiled. If you listen to the show and you haven't seen the movie, we will really fuck it up for you. So Yeah, it'll be ruined. So And it's a great movie. It's our. It's one of my favorites. Isn't it one of yours? We'll get into that in the regular show. Actually. Yeah, not in the spoiler opener. What but... the fuck are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> oh. This is Central Stand by. Tim, what the hell are you doing? I'm just doing push-ups and stuff and trying to get ready for the, uh, I'm going to the club tonight. Oh, yeah? Yeah. What kind of club? Well, the first rule of the club is I can't tell you about it. Oh, really? Yeah. Can you at the, least tell me the name of whatever we're recording here? The name of the show? Yes. This is called uh, Transmissions from the Forbidden Planet. Oh. Or TFTFP. That, that's the insiders. <laughs> yeah. All you hip cats that are right here. Right there. Who are you? My name is Timothy. And I'm Derek. Hello, Derek Ithy. Oh, hey, wow. <laughs> Only my closest friends call me that. <laughs> yeah, it rolls right off the tongue. <laughs> it does. Do me a favor, though. I have, I, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor, if you don't mind, okay? <laughs> oh, if it's hit you, I will be happy to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's what a coincidence. I was going to ask you to hit me as hard as you can. And I guess you were going to do it anyway. Yeah. Is what you're telling That's me. That's why my hand is way back here. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to talk about the movie Fight Club, you guys. We love this movie. I love it. Right. I love David Fincher. I love Brad Pitt. And I love Ed Norton and all these movies. And I love Helena Bonham Carter. She's mm-hmm. hot and sexy. Yeah. And that's true. He does really love them. He has pictures of them up all over his room. <laughs> and I've walked in on a yeah. very compromising right. situation. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, love them up. Mm, creepy. Uh, just as a little, uh, let's say, pregame show. Yeah, pregame. Much like our The Thing show, we won't be walking through this movie scene by scene. Right, right. It's, yeah. So it's definitely going to be more topical. We'll talk about scenes and we'll give away little spoilers. That's why we gave that warning at the beginning. But it's mainly our history with the film, metaphors that we think is in the film, and, and all that fun little stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely one you need to see at least once oh yeah but if you see it once so you're gonna want to watch it multiple times right yeah well i mean unless you hate it and then if you hate it why are you listening weirdo get out of here <laughs> anyway let's discuss we're gonna just dis- this is disgusting what we're discussing welcome to fight club if this is your first night you have to fight 
It was the year 1999, Ooh, right? Well, I remember it so fondly. Mm, me too. Mm. Me look, too. Look back there at that year. Mm. That's 1999. That's some good year right there. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, 99 is a year that I think as cinephiles, which they would call you and I, a really great year. What do we got on that list? So the geek in us was highly, highly looking forward to a little tiny film, very small budget, yeah. under the wire kind of film, yeah. sci-fi epic called The Phantom Menace. Yeah, the, mm-hmm. the first of the prequels came out in 1999. The world was set ablaze, and then the world set the movie theaters ablaze once they saw the movie uh, yeah. with hatred and vitriol. You know what? I, but it's still the highest grossing of the prequels, and I think it was that thing of it's a new Star Wars film. Yeah, People are right. going back to see it again thing. Do I not like it or do I like it? I'm going to see it one more time to see if I like Yeah, it. just to be sure. Just right. to be sure. Exactly. Yeah. We also have The Matrix came yeah. out in 1999. Huge, huge, huge thing. I mean, I, that came out before Star Wars. Yeah. And I remember that making a huge impact. Right. And like the sci-fi. Like, whoa, it's one of the best sci-fi films ever. And they always yeah. say that about new sci-fi films. Right, right. But uh, it was one of those things that I remember seeing it and thinking how unique and new it was. It was, it was yeah. really cool. Right. The next one is uh, probably more controversial now, but it was a huge movie back in 99, and that's American Beauty. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cancel culture, canceled. (laughs) Kevin Spacey, you're out of here, says Hollywood. (laughs) Thanks for the B-52s for stopping by. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But 99 was a pretty important year because some filmmakers that had been away for quite a while had finally come back. Like George Lucas to come back to do The Phantom Menace. He was gone from filmmaking. He hadn't directed a film since, what, 77 when Star Wars came out. Right, yeah, I think so. So that was his first time returning to the director's chair in that many years. And then Michael Mann comes back that year with The Insider. Right. Right, right. He he had a, like a four year absence, I think, since uh, Heat had come out in '95. So, I mean, not as big as George Lucas, but still an absence. Right, and then of course the coup de gras of mm. uh, film directors and his swan song. Uh, we have Eyes Wide Shut with Stanley Kubrick. Right, yeah, twelve year absence for Stanley. Yeah, he passed away before the movie was released, even unfinished editing, I believe. Too. Right, yeah, yeah. So we don't know if that's what we saw. We ne- we'll never know if he would have trimmed more or added more who knows yeah right they did a bad bad thing they did a bad bad thing but you know what else came out that year in 99 what else came out that year buddy a little film from one of our favorite directors david fincher my favorite director. he's the uh, i say he's the stanley kubrick of today uh, Uh, because he likes to do hundreds and hundreds of takes and his shots (laughs) are absolutely beautiful yeah Totally impeccable. Yeah. This is his fourth film. Yeah. He did Alien 3, <laughs> 7, oh, what's in the, box? the Game. This is your game, Nicholas, and welcome to it. And then Fight Club, the film we're talking about. Right. People are always asking me if I know Tyler Durden. Not so big of a hit with Alien 3. Nope. Big hit with 7. Right. The Game was in. Yeah. It did okay. Did okay. And then this one... 
again did okay. Right. <laughs> Didn't really hit hit the right spot. This is one of those movies that fell into that culty thing. Right. Yeah. And I think the cults grew pretty quick. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. um, like cults do. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And then and, and it's interesting. Uh, yeah, when you were talking about bringing up cults the other day, it really never hit me before that it really is right. a cult movie. It's yeah. a cult movie. Jim Jones, the leader of an American religious cult. Jim Jones led over 900 of his followers into the mass suicide. One of the biggest mass suicides in recorded history. Yeah. And I never, I don't know why it's so blatantly obvious that it is. Right. And I, I never really put it together that it's a cult movie. Yeah. So. Well, I, I didn't either. Until, well, more recently, I have always been a documentary fan, but I, I started watching documentaries on cults. Yes. And that really opened my eyes to it. Over the last <laughs> 10 years, really, but right. becoming more and more heavy in the last three years. Yeah. And you start to see the mentality of each one and how the foundation of each one is pretty similar. Right. And it goes after the same kind of people. Right. You have a charismatic leader. Right. And Tyler Durden, who basically breaks down his followers by dehumanizing them. And, right. And then makes kind of slaves out of them and feeds them a dogma, you know, right. that they buy hook, line, and sinker. Right. God damn it, an entire generation pumping gas, waiting tables, slaves with white collars. And they know that the only way that they can feel this way is through this this hierarchy guy that's right there in front of them. Right. He makes me feel good. He he's the one that brought me to this level that I need to be at, so I better stay with him. Yeah. Be devoted to him and such. Right. So yeah. Sooner or later, we all became what Tyler wanted us to be. But I mean, the interesting part about this cult is not everything Tyler is saying is out of line. Right. Which I'm sure most people in cults think. <laughs> right. About about yeah. No, I know. So maybe I've been in the cult right. of Fight Club ever since well, because I, like I'll I'll wholeheartedly admit that I drank the Kool-Aid Tyler made a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, and I, I pretty much have been ever since. In Tyler we trusted. When people ask me what's my favorite movie of all time, I pretty much almost always say this movie. Right. It kind of touches the chord. It's also in a different time period too before the whole touchy subject of toxic masculinity has come into play and all that stuff um, right which I think some people can probably look back at this movie now and kind of point that finger at oh, it oh yeah right I don't know I'm a white male I'm a young white male when this movie comes out I'm like probably I think 27 or 28 when it came out and I, I would have followed Tyler Durden to the end you know what I mean uh, so oh, yeah, right. I'm the target audience and I think you are too right right yeah I was 21 when this movie came out so yeah and you said you you think you were 27 uh, somewhere around there yeah yeah and that is one of the things that really fascinates me about this film because okay like I said I saw this when I was 21 and looking back now I didn't know who I was as a person back then or what I liked or didn't like or loved. I was right. still figuring all that stuff out. Yeah. And I think that with any movie, not just this one, if you see it and you like it or you bond with it in some way, there's something in that film that either you see yourself in or you want to be something like that in the film. And with this film, I think it puts forth a, a thesis, if you will, uh, to its audience. And that is, message from that thesis is going to be different for anyone who watches it. You take yeah. away different things from it. And uh, some people are only going to connect with uh, the narrator or Tyler or Bob or Marla or some not at all because they just don't like the film. Yeah. But for me, hearing some of what the narrator says in the film. I had it all. I had a stereo that was very decent. A wardrobe that was getting very respectable. I was close to being complete. 
complete. Spoke to me on one level. And then when Tyler comes in and he comes in saying what he's saying and all these things. I say never be complete. I say stop being perfect. I say let, let's evolve. Let the chips fall where they may. That just locked me in. Right. I was sold because one of these characters I see a lot of myself in and one of these characters I definitely wanted to be more like. Yeah. So for me, I was sold on it. And now that I'm nearing my mid-40s, I can see and identify with so many other things in the film. Yeah. Because the gift of this film, for me anyway, is that it grows with you. But at the same time, I can still tap into the things that I responded to from that unsure 21-year-old guy that I was. And so this film is just firing on all cylinders for me. Right, and that's kind of the modus operandi of the book and the character, too, in the movie, is mm-hmm. to identify with the narrator and want to be Tyler Durden, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. I totally did. Maybe a lot of that impression it's made on us is because we were at an impressionable age, too. Right. My classic thing is that there are so few social model novels or stories for men. For women, there are, a, you know, every season... There's a new Joy Luck Club, a new How to Make an American Quilt. Just all these different models in which women can come together and talk about their lives. And if you're a man, you've got either Fight Club or you have the Dead Poet Society. And that is really it. So we don't have a lot of narratives that, that depict to men a role or a kind of script in which to come together and talk about their their shed. Re, you know, I watched it yesterday for this recording, and um, okay. I don't know if I'm being biased or not, but I don't, I don't really know if this movie gets bad press for being toxic masculinity in today's thing. I think it might be people missing the point kind of thing and just seeing the straight to the violence and, and all of that stuff and, and not really right. kind of seeing the underlying tones of what's going on. I don't really think it's that's the intention at all. No. I think what it is is... A lot of the negativity that is shown in the movie, or they, like bad things they're doing, sometimes people will uh, embrace that negativity and kind of make it a positive in their life kind of thing. In the way, more recently, as I found out that the Tiger King is a hero to some people. Right, right. <laughs> you know, I can see that. I can, yeah, yeah, right. And and I think the message of the the movie is this: it's about a lost soul. Yeah. And and basically, someone who's trying to find direction and he's also mentally ill i love the idea of your alternate personality this this creation of yours that just gets fed up with you at a certain point he's just like sick to death of you and your weakness so if anything you know with awareness of, uh, today and and the acceptability today of a mental illness i think the movie can be also looked at in that perspective too as like yeah. shining a light on the darkness of mental illness you know no You can't die from insomnia. What about narcolepsy? I nod off, I wake up in strange places. I have no idea how I got there. You need to lighten up. Well, I mean, instead, before jumping into a lot of these heady things and everything, let's get our first experiences out of the way. Yeah, I, my first time seeing it, I missed it in the theaters. And I, at the time, like I said, I was like 27 years old. And, and like I said, The Matrix was popular. Jackie Chan was huge. Jet Li was huge. Right. The UFC was not what it is today. At the beginning, we were looking at what the fights should look like. It, if people really want to win fights, it's a different thing than when they're trying to kind of box or if it's kind of professional. 
fighting and something about the ultimate fighting championships because you have these guys with these completely different disciplines you have some some of them are you know boxers and some of them are street brawlers and some of them are like gracie jiu-jitsu guys it's always really interesting to watch that stuff so we really looked at a lot of it and it was so raw the fighting and it was and the people bleed so much when you see them when you see a guy get his nose broken and you see somebody get hit with the the palm of somebody else's hand and their nose just moves over like an inch and a half across their face it's just a completely different thing than watching evander holyfield although there's some good things in that too it was more of a sideshow act with different types of fighting styles competing against each other right whereas and then like five to ten years later it becomes that mixed martial arts that we know today where one practitioner knows several different styles right right okay so this was still at a time when you could be a kung fu person you could be a taekwondo person you could be a boxer you could be a right. like what i'm trying to say is like several years later mma kind of absorbs all of that shit and becomes the thing to be if you're gonna be a right. fighter you're gonna do it all right or be into fighting anyway and and so at this particular time i was into chinese martial arts and i i was like balls deep into it in 1999 right and uh i was also new in my career as a auto mechanic for BMW and I was sent out to Ontario, California for training and, and I missed being able to go see it with my Kung Fu friends back in Phoenix. So right. when you would go to the hotels at that time, they had the uh, movies on the, in, the, in your room. You could rent movies that are still in theaters kind of thing. Right. And right. so I remember Fight Club was on the, the option of movies you could see in theaters. And I, I remember my first day of training, just the whole fucking day, like barely paying attention to what's going on. Cause like all I wanted to do was get back to the hotel, <laughs> pay my $15 to watch Fight Club. <laughs> in my hotel bill, you know? Right. And that's when I watched it, yeah. Having no idea what to expect. I take it it was the fighting that got you to watch the movie. Yeah. Yes, okay. it was. It was very much because I was into this uh, this kung fu school who had a very hardcore sparring thing going on. And it was almost to a detriment. You know, there was right. we didn't have pads. We were on a cement floor. Right. People got hurt a lot. It was a little right. stupid when I look back on it now. <laughs> wasn't very well thought out. But uh, I would come into work from some of these sparring sessions. The next day, I would come in with, like, black eyes and, like, right. hurt fingers and limping because I, you know. Right. And it was kind of weird that it was coinciding in the same time with the Fight Club came out, you know. Totally. After fighting, everything else in your life got the volume turned down. So when you saw it that first time, uh, what did you think, like, about the ending and just everything? I think I was blown away by it. I think I was, like, because, like I said, I wasn't expecting all of this other shit. I, I, I didn't know what to expect. I knew it was just about dudes fighting and all that stuff. And then, right, as right. we were saying, the cultish thing starts developing, and uh, it right. develops into, uh, like, kind of pseudo-terrorism acts and all that stuff and then the, right. the love story that builds along the way what are you doing i don't know when people think you're dying man they really really listen to you instead of just instead of just waiting for their turn to speak yeah of course being wrapped up with tyler durden that the character is about as cool as cool can be and right. and brad pitt fucking kills it in that role yeah <laughs> And then just being like, whoa, on the turn. <laughs> exactly. Answer me, why do people think that I'm you? I think you know. That was not what I expected at all. Mm -hmm. And then, so I think the edginess of that sat with me for a while. Right. And, you know, I thought about it well, a lot. Yeah, also at this time in 99, 
the twist ending in movies is really starting to ramp up. I see dead people. Well, getting into my story about how I saw this film, at around 20 years old, I started wanting to get into shape because I wanted to meet some girls. (laughs) Yeah, right. uh, uh, One of my buddies introduced me to boxing, so I started really getting into boxing and uh, got a coach and everything and and did some fights and stuff. Wait, we were working together at this point? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. At the time, you and I were working in the same... uh, Dealership. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so at this time, I'm also not only a huge film nerd, but I'm also a huge fan of... David Fincher films. I've seen all of his previous work at that time, and I loved it. And so uh, hearing that he was going to do a fighting movie, a movie called Fight Club, I was just like, oh, I am so there for that because I'm I'm into boxing. And my favorite other film is Rocky, so he's doing a a Rocky-like film. I'm there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's it was just like, uh, what was, there was that one, uh, that Jean Claude Van Damme movie where he's Lionheart, where he's doing the street right. fights and all that stuff. Right, it's, right, right. Ooh, yeah. It's not that at all. <laughs> <laughs> right. Van Damme is. Also, if you go and look at the trailers that were selling this film, you can totally tell they did not know what they had or how to market it. And some people might think that that's a detriment to the film, but looking back on it, I think it's an absolute positive because the fact that they didn't know what they had meant that they didn't blow Mm -hmm. the huge ending. Right. So going into the theater, not knowing what to expect except thinking, well, this is a fight movie. This is like in Rocky Spirit, except things goes a little bit haywire or something like that. That's all that I knew about it. So seeing it, sitting down and watching it, I and then when the movie unfolds in front of you, it's everything I wanted it to be and also tons more that my mind could not even wrap around <laughs> right. it the first time. So of course I had to go see it again and again. Right. But Fight Club only exists in the hours between when Fight Club starts and when Fight Club ends. And one of the things that the narrator struggles with in the movie is something that I've struggled with my whole life, which is insomnia. Yeah. With insomnia, nothing's real. Everything's far away. Everything's a copy of a copy of a copy. So the way in the movie and the book how he describes insomnia and the way they show in the movie him tossing, turning, looking up, staring, this blank stare at the ceiling in the middle of the night. I've totally been there a million times. Oh, yeah. Plus, just because I'm in my early 20s at the time, I am i don't know what happiness is. I think I'm happy, but then seeing this movie and this puts forth so many questions, yeah. I'm wondering, am I happy? Am I not happy? Is that person happy? Yeah, right, do do right. things that I buy make me happy? And all of that stuff I start questioning. And that really actually set me on a course of, yeah, I like things and I like to be up on technology and stuff yeah. in my life. But also the things that make the most importance to me in life is experiences. I'd rather have experiences than just a lot of shit laying around. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Things you own end up owning you. Seeing that movie, loving it, end of it, finding out that there was a book and that was the origin of it and everything, but I uh, also working in the same building with you, seeing you come in beat up and everything like that. Yeah, we weren't necessarily seeing... friends yet. We just knew each no, other. But because of the this movie and you coming in like that, yeah. I remember me saying and a bunch of the people I worked with all seeing you come in and going, here comes Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah. 
Yeah, with well, a different fucked up thing. And I had tweaked my pinky, my ring finger. Right. I had a, a thing to try and straighten it for a long time. It didn't work. But right. I even and then uh, after that movie, I started buying Bedhead. That was when Bedhead was huge, and I was like oh, right. trying. To, I was doing the whole messy hair thing to try and be, you know, because I wanted to be like fucking Tyler Durden. You know? Oh yeah. Advertising has us chasing cars and clothes, working jobs we hate, so we can buy shit we don't need. I would go as far as to say that this movie hit us in like the perfect time of our life just because we were both in our own way into like fighting and we were also not really sure of ourselves, maybe lacking in confidence here or there and really was trying to figure ourselves out. And this movie is one of those things, like I guess in a cult (laughs) where it fills this void that you are you need in your life. Right. Yeah, and I was like maybe th- three years into a career that I'm basically selling my soul to. <laughs> right, right. And I, I mean, I'm kind of at the time too. I'm also struggling to get along there in there in in the industry. It's also a very male, you know, being an auto mechanic is a very oh, yeah. male-dominated industry, and it's very cliquish and and uh, yep. a lot of politics and egos thrown around. So it, yeah, it it hit me in a lot of those ways as well. I think. Oh well, yeah. yeah, yeah. Working in that environment, you have to have a thick skin. Yeah, we're gonna pick on you right. and all of these names are thrown at you and all this stuff so all of this stuff's happening in the movie bitch tits right, right. You, you feel right at home right right <laughs> you know sitting in that theater so this was one of those movies out of all of those movies that we listed at the beginning of these films which are all terrific films in their own right yeah. this was the one out of that whole year that was just like that movie it's gonna stay with me forever right i go back through that list i've definitely seen this movie probably double the amount of oh, whatever yeah. the next movie is may be the matrix or the phantom menace oh right absolutely he's embarrassing Yeah, and I think to me, you know, like I said, being a, a BMW mechanic, there's there's a couple scenes in there too where they, right. uh, when they're sent out on their Project Mayhem things, like you're gonna go out, you're gonna start a fight with a total stranger, and you're gonna lose. And, and then one of them is at a BMW dealership, and they, right. I love that scene because he pushes the salesman, and the salesman's <laughs> shoe goes flying <laughs> in the air. It's so fucking funny. I watched that. I watched that yesterday, and I just laughed out loud. I'm like, <laughs> look yeah. at how high his shoe goes. That's so awesome. And then also they they put the bird seed all over at a dealership as well, and there's cars are sh- all shit on, and right. it's all it's BMWs again. It's another BMW dealership, and the first car when they take the baseball bats to the car down the street after flipping the thing the first car they hit is a 7 series 740i e38 and i'm like oh dude there's a ton of beamers in this movie and you love beamers and i on the other hand working at the dealership <laughs> yeah. i was the one cleaning them and doing all this stuff at the time and, and my job and so i hated them yeah yeah so i was cheering on those and you were like oh son of a bitch <laughs> right right <laughs> the idea was sort of that they're going along and they're whacking every conspicuous consumption luxury car Range Rovers and BMWs and things like that and skipping the Hyundais and the Chevys and things like that and then we were going to have I can't remember what we were going to have and Brad and I were talking and I said I hate those new Volkswagen bugs and he said me too so we said let's put a Volkswagen bug in and we asked Venture if we could just uh, throw that in at the end because our spin on it sort of vis-a-vis all this other sort of generational war stuff that we were talking about earlier is that uh, if the Volkswagen bug was the ultimate symbol of sort of youth culture in the 60s or sort of the the democratic car, the car for everybody, uh, now that that generation has sold out all those values and all become corporate advertising executives and repackaged the symbol of their own youth movement and they're reselling it to us, 
Brad and I were talking about it, we felt like the, the Volkswagen Bug was a perfect example of, of our generation having 60s youth culture marketed to us as something we should aspire to. As we hinted to, of course, this movie comes from a book right. from a gentleman named... Chuck Palahniuk. That's right. That's a hard one to say, because when you see it on paper, you're like, what? Palagalukaliki? Palagalukaliki? Is, <laughs> is this guy Hawaiian? Yeah, or Inuit or something? <laughs> yeah. But no, he, he's a white guy. <laughs> right, right. And, and there's something I've noticed, too, in Chuck's writing style is, I'm, of course, I'm a car guy. And I'm into cars and mechanics and all that stuff. And, and the way he's breaking down stuff as he's explaining different things, whether it be making bombs or how to fuck up a, a car or something like that. And I'm like, well, right. Chuck himself, right. he must be kind of a man's man kind of thing because he seems to know a lot about manly stuff. Right, right. Because a lot of the stuff he talks about on the on the car front is pretty much right on cue. Okay. So the Fight Club novel comes out on August 17th of 1996. Right. And the the story of how Chuck came up with Fight Club is pretty interesting. Yeah. I had gone on a vacation. I'd been hiking and camping, and I had gotten into a really big fight with some people over noise at night in the woods. You know, some people who just had to camp right next to our camp just had to bring some huge radio up to 3,000 feet on the Pacific Crest Trail and have a, some big blowout party in the middle of the night. And I came back to work at the end of my vacation with my face just bashed. My face was so awful and so trashed that nobody would acknowledge it because to acknowledge it, somehow they would have to find out something about my private life they just did not want to know. And so for three months, as my face slowly changed color, eventually coming back to white, people would look at, at my chest and they would talk to my Adam's apple and they would say, so how was your weekend? Did you do anything interesting? And I'd be looking at them with two huge black eyes saying, no, how about you? <laughs> Uh, it just seemed so ludicrous that I thought, if you looked bad enough, no one would dare ask you what you did with your free time. <laughs> and that was the genesis of Fight Club. But yeah, that would be the origin, if you will. The, uh... the impetus to writing the story, yeah. He wrote Invisible Monsters first and right. uh, couldn't get it published anywhere. So apparently, out of frustration, he went to work on Fight Club, right? And, and then that got published. And Right. Yeah, apparently it was short stories, and then the short stories yeah. he was able to get published somewhere, and then it, he evolved the idea into a full novel. Right. And, it, and I guess to his surprise, he, when he turned in Fight Club, they were like, yeah, we'll publish this. And he was like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> right. But you and I both share the same experience of seeing the movie, loving it, and then later on coming to the book. Right. Yeah, I actually... I don't like reading. I hate reading books. I <laughs> like a massive attention deficit disorder, and uh, I get sidetracked. But I have read some books in my life, and, and uh, I've read a couple of Chuck Palahniuk books, and they were not Fight Club. <laughs> right. They, they were Invisible Monsters and Rant. Mm -hmm. And um, well, I, did, did you read these uh, after seeing Fight Club? This came way later. Yeah. This, okay. I, it was actually, Invisible Monsters came on recommendation by you. <laughs> right. And then my ex-wife bought it. She read it and made me read it. Then we had Rant after the fact. And this right. would have been somewhere around uh, 2008, I think or 2009 
that I read read these books. And okay, all right. Somewhere around 2013, I think, I got a copy of the book Fight Club, and I read all the way up to the part where he meets Tyler on the beach, and then I never went any further. It's that ADD thing where I, right. I'm like, well, I already know what's going to happen. I read, I've seen the movie 30 right. times at this point and lost interest and never finished. Right. This is funny. This is the scene, in, in the scene where we meet Brad for the first time on the plane. Because this scene doesn't exist in the book. They meet in the book. They meet on a nude beach, and I thought, hmm, as much as I'd like to shoot that and think that that would be a really <laughs> uncomfortable place for an audience to meet characters. I I have read quite a few of his books. So I think maybe the only one of his I haven't read is Lullaby. Uh-huh. And even in the books that I've read of his that I didn't really care for all that much, I've always appreciated from him that he's bold enough to write characters with no redeeming value at all. Well, yeah. That kind of even right. bad in the glory of their flaws. And, and that I really respond to just because it's a bold thing and a lot of people stay away from those characters and he puts them front and center. Oh, yeah, yeah. I got right in everyone's hostile little face. Yes, these are bruises from fighting. Yes, I'm comfortable with that. I am enlightened. Because writing a character like the narrator is, it's not exactly a character I would imagine that an editor, it would jump off the page at an editor and he'd be like, this is a great character. Yeah. Alone. Right. Paired with Tyler, it yeah. makes complete sense. Right. And that it makes that character whole, honestly, right. which is yeah. weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, it fills the whole thing out. Yeah, it's it's kind of genius in the way it, yeah. it's written, and um and that style and like what if you haven't read the book and you've only seen the movie, mm-hmm. that very kind of jump around and right, yeah. all over the place mm-hmm. storytelling is very much his writing style. Oh, absolutely. The two that I read also came to a big surprise ending, kind of like Fight Club does. You know, right? Exactly. And what I love about the narrator, what Chuck does with the narrator is he makes him the main character, where that character would probably at best be a background character in some other story but this he's front and center and he has an arc like a typical other story would have but he needs Tyler because they're one and the same as we find out he needs Tyler to make that complete arc he has the same arc that everyone else would have in another story he just is it's done in a completely unique way really genius I think it really is genius yeah I was sent the book by um Josh Donnan, who's an agent, who's now one of my agents at CA, who was an, a producer who had a deal here at Fox. He called me up one day and said, I'm sending you this book and you have to read it tonight. And I was like, I can't read a book tonight. I've, you know, I was finishing the game and I was working, you know, 12 hour days cutting and, and I, you know, wasn't that inclined. I'm not the kind of person who reads a lot anyway. So the idea of sitting, he said, no, you can read this book. You can read this book in a night. And I was just said to him, look, don't pitch me the whole thing, but just give me a reason why I should read this book. And he said, okay, there's a scene in this book where this guy, who's this anarchist who pisses in soup and splices single frames of pornography into family films, takes a convenience store worker in the middle of the night, kind of kidnaps him and brings him out to the parking lot and puts a gun to his head. Give me your wallet. <laughs> Raymond K. Hessel, 1320 Southeast Banning, Apartment A. Raymond... You're going to die. Oh, come on. An expired community college student ID. What'd you study, Raymond? And the guy says he wanted at one point to be a veterinarian, but the school was too tough. And I'm keeping your license. Gonna check in on you. I know where you live. If you're not on your way to becoming a veterinarian in six weeks, you will be dead. And I just thought, 
okay, I gotta read this book. Send it over. Since this movie's all about fighting and learning about yourself from fighting, <laughs> right. what's your history with it? The first rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. While I was involved with boxing, because I wasn't so great at it, I started to get a little complacent. Yeah. And basically, I just started to not really care about the outcome of the people that I was being put up against to fight. Right, so right, right. So once my coach saw this in me, he pulled me aside and he was like, do you even care anymore if you win or lose? And I really, without even thinking, said, nope. And <laughs> so he was like, you do not need to be doing this anymore then. Because you can basically go to a gym to get the same kind of physical workout that you're getting here without the beating. Uh -huh. So I just basically stopped right then. I didn't want to do it anymore. Yeah. Uh, but right. what ended up happening was that I had a couple friends at the time that I was hanging out with. And when we would end up going out to like clubs and bars and getting drunk and all of that fun stuff. Yeah. And right, right. so they were the type of guys that would get... Uh, get drunk and then get a little rowdy and eventually start fights and stuff and so uh by association i would get involved as well dumb guy ego stuff yeah. so in my head during these things of course i would be like hey i know how to box and all of that stuff <laughs> and uh of course that didn't happen i would not by any stretch of the imagination try to sit here and say that i was a good fighter because i had my ass handed to me several times in the ring and in bar fights and stuff so Right. I will say that the line in the film that Tyler says about... How much can you know about yourself if you've never been in a fight? Not saying this is true for everyone, of course, but for <laughs> yeah. me, uh, fighting was very cathartic. Yeah. I did feel that with each fight that I, I ever had, I learned something more about myself, and that was extremely cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Second rule of Fight Club is you do not talk about Fight Club. How about yourself? Well, I always had a life, ever since I was a little kid, I was interested in martial arts and, you know, kind of dorky shit. Right. It was considered dorky at the, t you know, in the 80s and all that. Mm -hmm. But I right. never got into a fight as a teenager or a young adult or anything like that. I kind of steered clear of that. I was a little... Like a fist fight. Fist fights, yeah. Right. I was a little unsure of myself and, and didn't quite have the confidence to be standing up to people or anything like that right and i think when the kung fu thing kicked in and and that was in like uh i, I think the or january of 99 so just as this you know ahead of this year i was just getting into it and mm -hmm. so some of the sparring sessions kind of felt like fights when you know right. they were a little more controlled than that it wasn't like that it was just dangerous because there was no padding and there was all you had was a cup you didn't even have mouth protection so people were getting black eyes all the time and twisting ankles and we had you know some arm breaks so there was that and then that that school kind of fell apart for me after a while and i me and some of my kung fu buddies were trying to find something to fill the void and we was like well let's try something different so we tried aikido and you know the steven seagal stuff right. you know right <laughs> but no it was more traditional aikido and let me just ask you this anybody know why richie did bobby lupo <laughs> bobby lupo anybody seen bobby lupo uh, no, I did not. And I, I also, I had done Taekwondo as, that's right. I forgot to mention, I did Taekwondo in, for like nine months 
was in third grade. Okay. I didn't really, ha I didn't know what I was doing with that shit. Anyway, so Aikido, it's Japanese, and uh, the Japanese thing is to the, you have to learn how to sit on your knees, and right. I could, that fucking drove me crazy. I hated it. And then <laughs> the instructors that were like lower level, not the head, the, the top guys were these older retired white guys. They were all kind of fun and nice and all that stuff, but then like the midline guys always had something to kind of prove. They were kind of dickish about stuff. And right. I'm like, all right, this is lame. I don't like this. We quit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it didn't work out. And to a friend of a friend from Kung Fu whose brother had tried uh, Krav Maga, which is Israeli military hand-to-hand -hand survival techniques. It's not really a... Hence shit. Yeah, yeah. That's, and I got into that, and I was really hard into that for most of the 2000s right. and then it kind of got on and off and on and off and i would come back to it every now and then got pretty good was in really good shape and all that stuff but right yeah i remember knowing you at the time you started the krav maga yeah you and i were friends by that time and looking it up and thinking that shit is really intense <laughs> it's for real yeah they just disarming stuff i never got to the level of the disarming weapons and all that stuff but right yeah of course this was more appropriately taught where so i didn't i never really got hurt in this too much but you know i did get punched in the face a few times in the, some of the sparring things and all that stuff mm -hmm. it was constantly be showing me that i had temper issues you know okay. being put in certain situations where you're being tested on how to keep your cool and how to disarm somebody who's being aggressive towards you right and i'm like i just rather just get into the fight right now kind <laughs> of thing i can't i'm not listening to the rules right but anyway after that faded out then you know i get lazy or whatever and i i don't work out much third rule of fight club someone yells stop goes limp taps out the fight is over uh, maybe four years ago <laughs> oh yeah yeah i uh got into a, a road situation with a road rager yeah road rager and i was being kind of a smart ass laughing guy at him and he chased me down and the tension of where I was living was a very crowded city. And right. I was like, ah, you know what? Fuck this guy. And I got right. out of the car and I shoved him and I fucking socked him. And then immediately broke all the rules of all the training I'd ever had. And just basically, I should have, you know, especially in Krav Maga, it's extremely offensive defense. Right. Where you don't throw one punch. You throw as many fucking punches and kicks and eye gouges and knees right. to the groin and everything. I just basically shoved the guy and punched him. <laughs> thinking yeah i got you and then he just came at me and he this guy I, i'm also in my mid 40s at this point and this dude this dude is like 25 years old and obviously a trained fighter and right. just socked me in the head about five times in the and i didn't even see any of these punches coming and i'm just oh, like right. holy shit and i'm like i'm like getting dizzy and i had a that's the one thing you can do all the sparring sessions you ever right. wanted to in years because you know it's coming right but in this situation they talk about this and i'm a fan of the ufc right so i've been watching ufc for years right especially back five ten years ago that when new guys would come in they would have what they would call like they'd be so nervous about the situation they would adrenaline dump in the first right. 30 seconds of the round and then it could be completely even though they're in tip-top shape they'd be completely yep. gassed yep 
within 30 seconds because their all their adrenaline was gone. Yep. And that's what happened to me in this fight. I I couldn't catch my breath. I had, I was shaky because he clocked me in the temple like three times. Like right. I almost went down. I almost got knocked out. Right. And I basically said, "All right, you win." I just <laughs> ran to my car <laughs> and hauled ass home. And I think I I, I both I texted you and my yeah. now wife. I she was away in New York City at the time, and I I texted her said I just got in a fight and I just lost. <laughs> 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 no, that I remember most of my problem in when I boxed was that I would aim for the rafters swinging. Yeah. In your first few punches. And then your yeah. hands feel like weights at the end of your arms and you're just tired. Right. And that's what you do. That, my adrenaline level would rush to the top. Right. And then I would, you know, the, the other person there would just be smart, wait it out. Yeah. Right. Get me yep. down. Right. Fourth rule. Only two guys to a fight. Yeah, so that's the only fight I've ever been in. And, and there was also, like, we were texting about it, and I was telling you, this is an eye-opening situation to the reality of my age, you know? Right. That I am on the, the physical decline. Right. It was kind of like a hard pill to swallow. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. Like, knowing that my uh, reflexes aren't what they used to be, you know? Right. I, I was probably, like, 45 years old at this point. Okay, yeah, yeah. And just kind of going, holy shit, no, this is real. I really am 45 years old. Right. And until, until you reach that point something like that happens you you will never understand what it nope. feels like until you're there and then you're like oh right. i am over the hill <laughs> it's right. legit you know right. because no matter what it is like it was a fight for you but it could be vision problems that start to kick in or yeah. throwing your back out reaching for a pin all of these things that remind you that you are not a kid anymore right right yeah 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 you are aging and as much as you thought before when you were young, you are immune to this damned old age thing. Right. In that hard pill to swallow that comes in life comes a new acceptance of life. You know? Yeah. It's weird, but again, strongly connected to this movie for me because the story's about a guy who fills his time and space with distractions that avoid him from getting to know who he is. Yeah. Because th that yeah. can be a very scary thing sometimes. Yes, it, yeah. But sometimes when life smacks you in the face or punches you in the face sometimes, it makes you take a look at where you are in life. And, and, and for me anyway, it was that shock. And then after the shock wears off, the acceptance of like, well, I guess this is reality now. I guess this is where we are. So here we go. For sure. So here's the gist. You want to talk to us? You want comments? You want reviews? All this horse shit? How could they not, really? Instagram and Facebook, we are mm. at TFTFP Podcast. If you want to tweet us or twit us or whatever it is out there, yeah, you just have to go podcast TFTFP. Yeah, because the other one was taken. Yeah. And <laughs> send us a gosh darn glorious little email. No dick pics, please. Uh, Tim, uh, don't, at, uh, don't tell him what to do. <laughs> <laughs> Care of Derek? No, the oh. email. The email address is uh, tftfppodcast at gmail.com Glorious. Like, subscribe, <laughs> and review us, and make it positive. Right. I mean, you can be negative about other things. Just don't mention us with the negativity. We're we're delicate over here. I got a thin skin. 
Tyler was full of useful information. So when we're getting into this movie now, mm. we basically, so we have this unnamed character, right? Right. And that's kind of the fun of the whole story. Right. You don't know who he is. No. Yeah. Well, when I first saw it, I assumed his name was Jack. Right. Mainly because of that. I am Jack's smirking revenge. It's a weird thing that I and apparently many other people hang on to that name Jack for the narrator because when we finally get to the narrator finding solace and relief from his insomnia in the uh, support groups the support groups so when we see him in that montage of him being in the different support groups being called the different names that's before he even starts using the I am Jack saying throughout the film yeah I am Jack's complete lack of surprise yeah Cornelius and Rupert and Travis, Travis. yeah which, right which supposedly Cornelius is from Planet of the Apes right Dr. Zayas Dr. Zayas Dr. Zayas, Dr. Zayas. Travis is from uh, Taxi, Taxi Driver. Driver, and Rupert. Rupert is from The King of Comedy. Right. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Let me introduce myself. My name is Rupert Pupkin. Yeah, and he's kind of a meek dude and a little bashful. Right. He's, he's narrating it, too. That old saying, how you always hurt the one you love, well, it works both ways. You can tell he's trying to be this big tough guy in his mind, but he's not, and it doesn't come out that way. Like, like the perfect example of when he meets Marla and starts confronts Marla about being a faker in the groups and all that stuff, and she, right. she basically calls him out right away. She's like, "I saw you practicing this. Practicing what? Telling me off." Is it going as well as you hoped? Because in his mind, when we see that his interpretation of it, it's very forceful. He grabs her. He shakes. Yeah. He yells at her. Molly, you liar! You big tourist! I need this now. Get out! And when he really does it, it's very like under his breath. Hey, right. I know you're a faker. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. He comes up against this person that I think he thinks is as meek as him. Right. And if he were called out, like he calls her out under his breath even like that, he probably would have hit the road. Right, right, right. So when she stands up to him, it's this kind of like, huh? Yeah, it's that right. thing that we were just talking about. You learn these things about yourself by having sometimes bad experiences happen. Right, right. Yeah, but I mean, ultimately, I think he's also, he's a hyper-capitalist and he's trying to find joy in getting all the best stuff. Right. Like uh, through through material. Right. They make the whole joke about the Ikea stuff. Right. The Fernie catalog idea was, again, some kind of visual representation of, of this you know, the idea that we're a byproduct of the armor that we select to let people know who we are and that those that's not just clothes and cars and, and you know, hairstyles, but it's also the furniture that you pick and whether or not it's, you know, sort of Southwestern or Pottery Barn or Ikea. He's finding solace in what we're all being sold Right. What right. should make us happy. And when, for certain people, that does. That does make them happy. And other people, because they see other people being happy with this stuff, and then they obtain, sir, I make this much money, and I have this kind of car, or I have all of this stuff. Why am I not happy? Why is this right. not making me happy? It's supposed to. All the ads say right. those are happy people in the ads. Right, right. Right. Yeah, and, and then you combine that with this. He's obviously, he talks about being a severe insomniac. Right. He's trying to get pills to go to sleep, and the doctors won't help him, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, so so let's just stop real quick and unpack this bag for a moment in the scene here. Please just give me something. Red and blue, two and alls, lipstick, red, second alls. No. You need healthy, natural sleep. 
in this scene, what unfolds because of the events of what happens in this scene is one of the things that I can totally identify with the narrator on. <laughs> but right here is a man going to seek help for a problem that he has. And I'm just assuming over-the-counter uh, sleep medication is just not cutting it for him. So he wants the prescribed stuff, which is an easy fix to what we know so far in this story is the pretty simple, not-too-exciting life of the narrator. Right, right. So my question is, could the narrator be an addict? And I think the answer is definitely yes, because yeah. when the doctor says, no, I'm not going to give you that prescription. Hey, come on. I'm in pain. You want to see pain? Swing by First Methodist Tuesday nights. See the guys with testicular cancer. That's pain. And the narrator ends up going and doing that. He seeks out these support groups and becomes what? Some might describe as obsessive about them, and right. some might deem that obsession an addiction. Right. And who can't identify with that on some level? I know I definitely can, especially when I was young and obsessing over things that would most of the time lead to sometimes not the greatest outcomes. Yeah. So it, it's just so fascinating to me that this story has so many on-the-surface things for the character of the narrator to lock onto. But right. then when you go under the surface, there's even more stuff to latch, latch onto. onto. Right, yeah. Maybe, maybe all of them, yeah. Exactly. Right, yeah. I became addicted. So the narrator is played by Edward Norton, and uh, right. Edward Norton kind of being a rising star at this point. He'd have the, I think, Rounders is before this, right? Right, yeah, Ra Rounders is before this. Uh, the first time I saw him was Primal, Primal Fear. Fear. Right, yeah, and I thought he was so great. Yes, me too. Yeah, yeah, totally got bought. And he's great in Rounders, too. Oh, he's great in Rounders. He's great. He was also in a little small part in uh, People vs. Larry Flint. Well, that's he's right. great in that. Yeah. And uh, so this movie comes out in the same year as his American History X. Right, right. You know? And so those two movies show a completely different guy. Right. Completely different guy. Right, right. I understand how you feel. I mean, you've just done some hard time. Don't you fucking talk to me about hard time. You don't know a thing about it. Even though I think he's a fantastic actor and everything that he, I've seen him in, he will always be narrator to me. Absolutely. Forever. He is this forever. So when I hear stories of him being difficult, right. I'm like, well, that's a narrator. <laughs> How can he be difficult? Yeah, right. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. 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 And it's funny, too, because you know, you, going back to American History X, he kind of is the nihilistic Tyler Durden in that. Mm -hmm. And he's way more buff. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because in Fight Club, he looks a little emaciated. He gets muscular and sinewy, like he describes in the movie. Mm -hmm. But he's not like Brad Pitt built. No. In American History X, he is kind of like that. Yeah. Right. I felt sorry for guys packed into gyms, trying to look like how Calvin Klein or Tommy Hilfiger said they should. Is that what a man looks like? <laughs> Uh, Self-improvement is masturbation. No Self-destruction. I, I didn't ever ask you, but uh, like I identify with the narrator so much. Was there anything that you latched onto when you first saw it? Yeah, I, yeah, totally. The whole thing. Uh, I think being disheartened, and I think this movie kind of woke me up to maybe being a bit of a consumerist zombie that I wasn't really aware of, and made me yeah. start thinking about things in a way that I had never thought of before. Right. Like, oh yeah, we, we really don't need that shit. And and uh, why do I know what a duvet is? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, 
also, you know, not necessarily being, you know, having self-confidence issues. And this is why I did martial arts right. and all that stuff. Totally, uh, yeah. and, and, and his kind of struggles with the Marla situation. Mm-hmm. It's probably exactly who I was. Yeah. Right. Sometimes Tyler spoke for me. Fell down some stairs. Fell down some stairs. So if you have the narrator... You have to have Tyler. You got to flip that coin around and there's Tyler Durden's face. And what is Tyler Durden? Tyler Durden is the narrator's idea of what the perfect man is, Mm -hmm. right? Right, yeah. I mean, he even says it in the film. Yeah. All the ways you wish you could be, that's me. I look like you want to look. I fuck like you want to fuck. I am smart, capable, and most importantly, I'm free in all the ways that you are not. And Brad Pitt, and especially at that time... He's also a rising star. Mm-hmm. He'd done a few fluffy movies like Legends of the Fall and all that stuff. And with a vampire. And but he also did have Seven under his belt. Which is what made me take notice of him because before that I was just like, oh, this, this guy. This guy again, right. This, get out of here with your Legends yeah. of the Fall and all that stuff. <laughs> right, right. And, uh, or River Runs Through It, you yeah, know. Yeah, right. whatever. <laughs> so, yeah, you're a pretty boy. Yeah, exactly. But ultimately, the twist is Tyler is the narrator. They are the same person, and he is split personalities. Right, yeah. So that when the narrator does actually go to sleep, he's actually awake, Mm -hmm. and he's Tyler. Right. Also, Tyler is bouncing around in little jobs, and the narrator is the one with the career. As a uh, recall uh, analyst for a car company. Right, which is great. Yeah, yeah, and that's the part I'm talking about. When they're talking about the details of that stuff, you know, when they're breaking it down, that's legit shit, a lot of right. it. It's not like Megan Fox opening the hood of the Camaro and Transformers <laughs> and, you know, oh, your carburetor's out of adjustment in a thing that's fuel-injected or what, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. It's more like watching Marissa Tomei and My Cousin Vinny. Exactly, yes, because she nails that. That too, right? Right, yeah. The Chevy didn't make a 327 in 55. The 327 didn't come out till 62. And it wasn't offered in the Bel Air with a four barrel carb till 64. However, in 1964, the correct ignition timing would be four degrees before top dead center. So he travels all around the country right. for his work. And that's how Tyler is being able to start Fight Club and start Project Mayhem. So. Right, setting up. Franchise. Franchises, yeah, right, right, yeah. <laughs> a line that reverberates through the whole movie on it more does. than one topic. Right. Yeah, because because he yeah, when they're talking about their father, right. they're basically talking about the same dad, but at the right. time you don't know that. But it's the way it's written, it's very I love it. It's it's almost like he's it's the same person talking, but it's coming out of two bodies. Right, exactly. And um I love that scene. Yeah, it's, it's I just it's immaculate that scene. Right. <laughs> Yeah, and he he said basically the narrator's talking about how every six years his dad would start a new family in a different city, kind of thing. Right. And Tyler teases him and says like, "Yeah, the fuck, you're setting up franchises." Yeah, and that's basically what they end up doing. They right. set up Fight Club franchises and Project Mayhem franchises. But so right before that, Tyler basically should have said, "Spoiler alert!" <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, and so Tyler is, you know, obviously Brad Pitt is a very attractive person, and he's right. a very charismatic person, and right. he's that kind of freakishly fit 
kind of guy right. that doesn't really have to work out. Like in real life, Brad Pitt right. is that way. Right. He doesn't have to work out that hard to be super cut. You know. Right. That's what, yeah. Clooney made jokes about that when they were doing the Oceans movie. He's just yeah. like, I'd be taking my vitamins and eating fish and this amount of rice and measuring out my food. And he's like, and Brad Pitt's over there eating like a salami sandwich and Doritos. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's fucking ridiculous. Right. This is crazy. You want me to hit you? That's right. What, like in the face? <laughs> Surprise me. Uh, there is a dorkiness about Tyler and, and yeah. some of his delivery, but he it's so confidently dorky that it's cool. Right. <laughs> and his silly laugh, too. Yeah. yeah. There is a strange phenomenon that if almost anything is done confidently, yeah. it can be cool. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's right, weird. Right, right, yeah. Just like, just like Fonzie punching the jukebox. And right. Music starts playing. Right, yeah. It doesn't work for me. I'm not cool enough. Something. <laughs> hey, you're cool <laughs> enough, Derek. Come on, guy. It's so funny because it's a contradiction. He, Tyler is a walking contradiction. Yes. But at the same time, you're completely like, yeah, that's what, you know, you're going along with him. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, like, as a cult leader that Tyler yes. is, his first devotee is himself mm-hmm, in right. the narrator. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. if he doesn't have himself right. aboard, then there's no plan. <laughs> yeah, he can't, right. Yeah, can't do the whole thing. Right. So you sell yourself, you can sell anyone. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Did you know if you mixed equal parts of gasoline and frozen orange juice concentrate, you can make napalm? No, I did not know that. Is that true? That's right. One can make all kinds of explosives using simple household items. Really? Yeah, it's pretty clever. Mm-hmm. Indeed. I, I think that's what Tyler would say. How's it working out for you? What? Being clever. Great. Keep it up, then. So since you and I came to the film first and then found the novel later, right. Tyler Durden, whenever you say that name, is always going to conjure the image of Brad Pitt. That's yeah. who Tyler is to me. Again, like I said that I associate... Edward Norton with the narrator for the rest of my life, probably. That is who he is to me. Right. Tyler Durden will always be Brad Pitt, and Brad Pitt, uh, even though I like a ton of his films, mm-hmm. he's always going to be Tyler Durden. Yes. And the the book is definitely the blueprint for the movie, even though everything's not beat by beat. Yeah, they, like the lines are almost straight out of the novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's, I mean, it's sh- it's shortened, obviously, and condensed, and right. little little bits cut out. But honestly. It's one of the most pure adaptations of a novel mm-hmm. that's ever been put on film. You yeah, know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, for sure. And even in saying that, though, it's not exactly like the book. There are definitely differences. Right. And maybe we should break those down real quick. Number one. As we already spoke of, Tyler and a narrator in the book meet each other at a nude beach. In the film, on a plane. And this is how I met Tyler Durden. Number two. In the film, there is a character named Chloe, who is dying of cancer. In front of a group, she confesses, Well, I'm still here, but I don't know for how long. That's as much certainty as anyone can give me. I am in a pretty lonely place. No one will have sex with me. I'm so close to the end, and all I want is to get laid for the last time. In the book, this is a private confession directed towards the narrator. Number three, Robert Polson, a.k.a. Bob, meets his demise in the book while stealing money from a payphone on a mission for Project Mayhem. 
In the film, it's a much more elaborate mission trying to destroy a modern art piece and a Starbucks at the same time. But in both, he gets shot while trying to run. This is a man and he has a name. And it's Robert Paulson. Okay. Number four. In the book, the narrator not only knows about Project Mayhem, but is much more complicit in some of their missions. In the film, the narrator is kept in the dark about what goes on with Project Mayhem, and when he does find out, has growing concerns about the direction it's heading and even tries to stop it. This is, this is bullshit. This is bullshit. I'm not listening to this. You are insane. No, you're insane. Number five. In the book, Tyler's plan is to remain inside one of the buildings he's about to blow up. Knowing that the Project Mayhem team knows about this, he believes this will make him go down as a martyr. In the film, Tyler's plan is to simply set up shop in another sky rise that has a perfect view of the buildings he's about to blow up. Out these windows, we will view the collapse of financial history. One step closer to economic equilibrium. Number six. In the book, after the narrator shoots himself to prove he does not need Tyler any further, he wakes up inside of a mental institution. The plan of Tyler's has been thwarted and the bombs defused before they went off. But the narrator is soon assured by some of the employees of the hospital that Project Mayhem is very much still alive and awaiting Tyler's return to society. But in the film, the narrator shoots himself, absorbing Tyler into his own personality. What's that smell? He is rejoined with Marla, and then the bombs do go off. Tyler's plan has come to fruition. So that was just some of the more major changes from the book to the movie. Right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. For me, as a cinephile, yeah. uh, Tyler Durden's character is one of the more influential characters in my cinema history, yeah, if right, you will, just right. because he has influenced some of the things and my responses to certain situations in life. Some of the lines from this movie has embedded itself into my mind to where I'm not even actively thinking, oh, that's that line from Tyler I'm going to use here. I just say it, and then I realize, oh, I'm saying Tyler Durden stuff. <laughs> Especially that clever line that he uses on the narrator in right. the film. I love that line so much that that is literally one of those things that when someone is being cheeky with me, right. and I don't think they're being as cheeky as they think they are, <laughs> I immediately go to that line. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, not even looking at the monitor, just hearing it over the headphones, it was like... This is great. I mean, Brad was completely that aberrant creature that you meet that's fascinating. And Edward was so perfectly, I'm sorry, I just woke up and I'm not really sure what you're saying. And I'm not, you know, I mean, there's this great kind of half step behind. And I sort of, it's one of those moments where you go, oh, these are the perfect guys for this. <laughs> it just worked out. I don't know. Uh, can you picture anybody else doing it? outside of Brad Pitt? Oh, God, no. No, that's one of those ones that usually I'm pretty lax when it comes to when people get a little up in arms over the new casting about James Bond or Batman or stuff like that. Even yeah. as much as I love Kurt Russell and they talk about remaking Escape from New York, I love that character, Snake Plissken, but they're talking about like Gerard Butler or Jeremy Renner, those people replacing him. And right. as much as I love that character, I could I could kind of step out 
outside of my love and say, oh yeah, I can kind of see how that might work. But with Tyler Durden, I just there's I just can't think of anyone else that could fill that role like Brad Pitt does. This is a chemical burn. And I mean, not just the looks that he brings to it or the intensity or anything like that. I mean, even the goofiness that he right. brings to it. I can't think of anyone that could bring that to the role. And even the clothes that he wears and yeah. the goofy clothes that he's wearing sometimes, he somehow makes it look good. Like yeah. he's wearing the shit out of the And looking clothes. cool as shit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And those the big rose glasses, right. sunglasses yes. and all that. Sorry, Fonzie, not even you. <laughs> <laughs> right. And his hair, right. everything. No, I, I can't either. I can't even. In fact, I mean, we're going to get to it later in the podcast, but there, mm-hmm. you know, Chuck Palahniuk did write a sequel to... Right, right. The, novel. the novel. But it came out in a graphic novel, and so it's a comic book, essentially. Mm-hmm. And um, right. the artist's depictions of Tyler in that, I still was irritated by. I was <laughs> aggravated because... He's he's taller, bigger, you know, more squared. I don't know, more more rough faced, and he has right a little like Fabio. Yeah, and he has like (laughs) like shoulder length hair, and I just kept getting aggravated by like that's not Brad Pitt, (laughs) which I think is the point, you know, in Chuck's novel. But we'll get to that later. Right. So, but even in saying that, I can't just he was being drawn differently, and it bugged me. Yeah, totally. Congratulations. One step closer to hitting bottom. One of my other favorite things about this story is that it gives the character of the narrator a full character arc yeah. like you would see in any of your other favorite films. Like my, one of my favorite films is Rocky. So you take Rocky, for example, the first one. Right. He starts out, he barely making ends meet. He's working for a gangster and having to break people's fingers who's not paying that gangster what they owe him. And uh, what he is is he wants to be a fighter. He wants to prove himself as a fighter. And in the end, it doesn't matter if he wins or loses. Right. What matters is, is he's up against one of the best best fighters out there and he goes the distance right that's his full character arc the narrator gets a full character arc too yeah but split into two characters and once those two characters become one he achieves everything that that character needs yeah yeah he has to take charge to have that full character arc it's it's just a really brilliant way and unconventional way to tell a story by taking charge he has to get rid of tyler right right exactly. even though tyler is everything he wanted to be right and right. because of the confidence tyler gave him right he has the confidence to stand up to tyler which is awesome. right yeah but yes and that's, right that's good storytelling. You created me. I didn't create some loser alter ego to make myself feel better. Take some responsibility. I do. I am responsible for all of it, and I accept that. He sees the nihilism and the right, the destruction and the the negativity. He sees him for the cult leader that he is, and right. says, "I wait. I don't want to be this guy. Right. This is guy. This guy is me. I, I don't want this." Right. Yeah. His firm stance to not want to be like Tyler is finally stronger than I'll just go along with Tyler thing. And that also bleeds into the whole thing of since you and I happen to be uh, documentary fiends, right? We right. we watch a lot of those documentaries about cults and stuff, and there are those uh, documentaries about cults like uh, the Heaven's Gate one, where they show people who got out of Heaven's Gate before the whole thing happened. You wish you had gone with them. I, I wish I had the strength to have remained, to have gained the kind of control through those help, these help, to have stuck it out and continue to be a part of that crew, yes. 
and the way they talk about it they're acknowledging all of the craziness that was involved in it but at the exact same time they're acknowledging it you can see this longing to still want to be a right. part of it it's that and some of them did right. they went and right. committed suicide at way after the fact right yeah, yeah. And, and so when after you see those documentaries that we were talking about yeah you re-watch fight club with brand new eyes you see the two sides of it you see the narrator seeing the stuff that project mayhem is doing and repelling against it right but yet again then there's those parts in the movie where you can see the narrator kind of excusing the stuff that uh, fight club and project mayhem is doing so it's that give or take that you see in some of those people from those documentaries right that it's just so interesting the, the, yeah even with the nexium one right there was still people that were like god eat that guy is so charismatic i'm like no he's not what are you looking at he's a loser <laughs> right yeah well what was his name keith ranieri right keith ranieri yeah and the, oh, that guy was just repulsive Ugh. he is a dweeb oh completely good riddance yeah yeah, and that's that's one of those things that I just love about this film is that it feels so ahead of its time. Even now, 22 years later, yeah. it, it's really addressing these things that are in the forefront now, like mental illness and terrorism right. and extremists and consumerism and cults right. and addiction. I mean, the story is just so very perennial. Right, right. So, we each have three. That's six. What about the seventh day? I want a sending bowel cancer. The girl had done her homework. So we got to get to the next major character, and that's Marla. Oh, man. Such a complicated, confident, sexy, sassy, brilliant character. Yeah. And the, the book Marla and the movie Marla, there are definite differences. Uh, two, yeah, they are very different. And it's all because of Helena Bonham Carter. Yep. I think Marla... Definitely, if it was not for Marla, Tyler would not be engendered. And that the need to invent Tyler comes from meeting Marla or um, in confronting Marla and somebody who he could possibly have a, a relationship with. He's too scared and retreats and invents this character that he feels could have a relationship rather than himself. She has it, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? There's certain women that have it. Yep. Yeah, and granted, you're used to seeing her mostly in period pieces <laughs> right. and Kenneth Branagh Tim stuff. Burton. Yeah, Tim Burton stuff. <laughs> Kenneth Whatever, whoever she's dating at the time. Yeah, she's brilliant. And Marla's entrance is probably one of my favorite moments in the movie. I just love the way she kind of takes the stage. She was so funny. She had these boots on that were clogs. You could literally, it's like a Clydesdale coming up the stairs. You could hear this woman coming from like three floors below. And so we wanted to really make that a part of Marla's characters. Like everywhere she went, she enters a room like five minutes before she gets there. You just says, clomp, clomp, clomp. And she ruined everything. This is cancer, right? She adds a gravitas to this character that oh. is nowhere n close to being in the novel. Right, yeah. No. And and it has to come from not putting him down at all, but Chuck's a guy writing a woman. Yeah, right, and he can't write that stuff. Right, right. you can't write that. And, and I'm not saying that the writer of the script even was a female. I'm saying that it takes Helena or an actress, a woman, to look at it and say... No, I want to do it this way. No, I yeah. want to say it this way. I'm going to use this tone. Or I'm not going to say that. You know, all right. of those decisions influence this. And it takes David Fincher, of course, to just be like, that's that's more interesting. Do that. Right. Yes, yes. Yeah, because she is way more sexy oh, and competent than the, the Marla of the book. Right. And I can honestly say I knew of her before this movie came out. And if someone would have pointed her out at that time mm -hmm. before this movie, I would have said, eh, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, she's, yeah, she's kind right. of attractive. Yeah. But when you see her in this movie, it's like... Like, wow, she is hot, she tops. Yeah, she's kind of, yeah, right. she, just ha she just exudes. 
sex appeal. And it's that confidence thing, I think. If Tyler is like he is because of confidence, Marla is like she is because of confidence. And here's the trick of the movie, though, as, as when you're watching it for the first time and you're just as an infant baby as everybody in the movie is. Right. You kind of see in her and she's almost a little abrasive yeah. in her confidence and her, you don't really see what's going on. But then, you know, you, you see the movie, you find out, oh shit, she's been with this guy who's mentally ill right. and flipping in and out of these two personalities and doesn't know it the whole time. Right. This is my house. What are you doing in my house? Thank you. Because Tyler sets up this rule, you cannot talk to Morla about me. Right. Because Tyler knows everything that's going on. Right. He's in control of everything. He knows if Ed Norton, the narrator, says something, deceit falls apart. Right. So when you watch it a second time and you you can really kind of focus on her performance, right. you can see the subtle hurt feelings and she becomes a tragic, tragic. figure. You know what? I really think it's time you got out of here. Don't worry, I'm leaving. Yeah, not that we don't love your little visit. You know, you are such a nutcase. I can't even begin to keep up. You feel really bad for her, oh, and yeah. she's she's trying to connect with this guy yeah. on a very romancy kind of way, and you don't really see that the first time that right. it's romancy, and I, at least I didn't. Right. No. I just thought it as her being like a sex kitten. Right. But you know, now that you know that she's being played, yeah, you, her eyes are telling the story yep. of ow, ow, you're hurting my feelings, and it it's it's a brilliant performance. Yeah. This was a female character that I know that I never saw before I saw this movie. Right, right. And I totally understand why she wanted this part, and apparently why a lot of top actresses in Hollywood wanted this part, because it's a part where you can be sad, and you can be funny, and you can be vulnerable, and sexy, and... Raunchy, and controversial. My God, I haven't been fucked like that since grade school. Not a lot of controversial women characters at the time. Period. Oh, right. Yeah. That's why it's such a great part. Right. Right. When you see the movie and then read the book and see the character in the book, Marla is just a kind of a... She's more like Ed Norton's character, the narrator. Right. She's weak, a little bit weak and sad and doing these support meetings because she's lonely mm-hmm. and desperate. Well, yeah. That's what I think is brilliant about what they do with the script for the movie is that in the book, she's a little bit more lonely and that's why she's going to these support groups and everything like the narrator but in the movie maybe she's a little lonely but she's also says she's bored but it's like that scene in the movie where she's just so bold when she walks into the testicular cancer group smoking and was right like, there's no there's yeah right that attitude and there's like zero innocence about her that character all right exactly And one of the really brilliant things that I think the movie does is it knows what movie tropes is. So if you're watching something like, let's say, Indiana Jones 3, how Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones is talking to Sean Connery, who plays his dad, and he's always calling him, Dad, Dad, come here, Dad, look at this. Dad! 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 He's using Dad too much. No normal person would do that. But that's because of the movie. They're, I guess, having to constantly remind you that's his dad. Uh But in this movie, it's key that she does not call him Tyler. And At least I don't know. I've never really been in a, a relationship with somebody where I'm calling right. my significant other by their first name. Right. You know what I mean? So Because right. if the minute she says, Tyler, what are you doing? Right. That ruins the whole thing. So like, why did you call me Tyler? Right. And that's what I mean. The, the film is really smart about how 
it's it's kind of tiptoeing around that, but not in a real obvious way. But you don't do that. You just say, honey, babe, whatever, you know, like that, mm-hmm. you know. Right, exactly. And that's the writing doesn't call attention to itself for being movie writing. And that's I just love that about this film. Even on second watch, it doesn't seem contrived. Yeah, right. And like, yeah. Even in that scene where the narrator is talking about the relationship between the narrator and Tyler. Right. But she's hearing it from the perspective of the narrator and her. I don't know. I don't understand. I mean, why, why does a weaker person need to latch on to a strong person? What, what, what is that? What do you get out of it? No, it's, it's not the same thing at all. I mean, it's totally different with us. We're, we're... Us? What do you mean by us? And it's just this weird thing that's going on there, but nothing is ever broken as far as the the giveaway. Right. But it still blends together and it misinterpreted in weird ways. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so when you're seeing it for those second and however many other times you watch after your first time, you're seeing it from her perspective of like, what's going on here? Yeah, right. <laughs> right. 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 So yeah, as a, a cinephile, if Tyler is one of my favorite male characters on screen, then Marla is one of my favorite female characters on screen. She's right. just so comfortable in her own skin it's sexy and intoxicating and ah, i love it yeah and she's doing the same crazy weird hairdo shit that yeah you know that tyler's doing she's and the it's, female tyler yeah she really is yeah yeah but she's vulnerable right you know because she is a whole person right so she, she's she's the female embodiment of the two of them right together. exactly right yeah yeah she's just a little bit more in touch with herself so yeah yeah the narrator yeah. is right yeah, because one of the things in the book that they do say is that she had a cancer scare and she'd been having these lump issues with breast cancer right. for a long time. And that's what got her going to the support groups just to pretend. And then find you know, that's how she got in. Right. You get a little backstory on her. Right? right. Whereas this Marla, you know, the movie Marla, I should say, is doing it for the same reason that the narrator is doing it. You right. know what I mean? Yeah. And in the movie, they do address that whole breast cancer thing that you just mentioned that was in the book, yeah. where uh, there's a scene where she invites the narrator over to check her breasts for any lumps. And it yeah. turns into this awkward scene. When you see it the first time, you're thinking, is she trying to get with him, too, now that she's with Tyler? Right. But on second viewing, you realize that she's just like, no, she's just she wants attention from him. Maybe it was a real scare for her, but she's trying to get his attention and not. Yeah. She's trying yeah. to say, hey, stop being crazy. Yeah. <laughs> right. We kind of like each other. And you're acting like we don't. You're acting like we've never had sex before. And you're hurting my feelings. Right. I I know that it's got to seem like there's two sides to me when you're watching. Two sides. You're Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Jackass. Being that you and I are big fans of Helena's performance as Marlene, she's a great character. Can you think of any other actress that could have played it? No. Right. Yeah, no, me too. Like what you were talking about, this movie is so near and dear to my per- my heart personally. Right. I w- I don't want anybody else. I right. just I want it the way it is. Yep. It's perfect. Leave it alone. Right. I guess the fourth character <laughs> we need to talk about. And we've mentioned him a few times, but it's David Fincher and, oh, and man. his vision, his obsession with perfection and right. image. You right. know, I could not fathom the idea that. 20th Century Fox would want to make this movie. But I went in and just sort of said, look, I want to take the book, make it into a movie. I I don't want to change it that much. I want to try to maintain as much of this voice because I think, you know, ultimately the the strongest thing that the film has going for it is Chuck's voice. He's, He's truly got his own take on things. And they called and said, yeah, let's go do it. And to their credit, I got to say, 
I've never been involved in a movie where things were not second-guessed. I guess some people, it's not for everybody. Kind of like the way Stanley Kubrick stuff has turned people off uh, in the the early stages. And there's a lot of, like, insider people who are annoyed by the stories. Right. Yeah. That they hear about them. The multiple takes is is definitely the Kubrick thing. Yeah. And also a Fincher thing. And a lot of actors who wanted to really up their game, wanted to work with them, ended up finding that uh, tedious, basically. And so he really makes sure that everyone who's coming to the set ups their game. And he's not just a director about visual style. It's not just about image. It's about sound. And it's about everything you experience in that movie. He wants it to his exact specification. And that's what I love about it. Right. I've never ever walked out of a David Fincher film disappointed at all. Right. Or, or, right. or his TV shows. Right. Anything that he's a part of, I always walk out liking. Maybe I like something more than others, but I'm never, ever disappointed by no. it. No. And no. I, I definitely can't think of any other director that I know of that would make a movie this nihilistic. Right. It's only after we've lost everything that we're free to do anything. Also, to find the humor in it, too, because the whole idea of working Tyler into, you know, like the little flash clips of him showing up leading into the movie. Right. And then uh, when we find out that Tyler's a projectionist. Like splicing single frames of pornography into family films. At the, the very end of the movie, the last scene is yep. a, a flash of a dick, you know, that like... Tyler's in the booth upstairs. <laughs> right, 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 right. It's it's funny. <laughs> that's awesome. Even a hummingbird couldn't catch Tyler at work. That's stuff that's not visual in a, in a novel. Right, yeah, it's really creative. And I think that some of that comes from David Fincher's history. You know, before he was making movies, he was in advertising. And before that, right. He was in visual effects. He was he actually worked on like uh, Return of the Jedi and some of the, in the visual effects capacity and stuff like that. So didn't he do mu- music videos too? Right. Yeah. Yeah. He did Paula Abdul videos. I think he did Madonna videos. Because I think because of Chuck Palahniuk's jumpy writing style and the the way the story has to be discombobulating in its way, that jump cutting of a video director Mm -hmm. comes in handy for this film perfectly right. you know what yeah, I mean I think it, I think all of his previous talents fit perfectly into a project like Fight Club because he has to utilize all of it the yeah. consumerism is there so that comes in from his advertising days with commercials and yeah. then you, like you said the music video helps with all of the fast cutting yeah. and then his days as a visual effects artist that helps him with all the visual effects that it's going to need to pull off this film it just it all blends so perfectly like in the opening scene where we're seeing inside, He's inside his head yeah synopsis are firing off we come all the way out and up the barrel of a gun pointing at the narrator. I mean, all of that stuff is coming from the mind of a guy who has been all around in his business. It's 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 so perfect. Right, right. Yeah, right. And then you have all of that other stuff that's happening in that opening scene. We're zooming down and all around seeing vans and parking garages and then all of a sudden we see the narrator's face and the breasts of... Bob. Bob had bitch tits. <sighs> that jump cut style elevates uh, Chuck Palahniuk's writing style. Right. You know, and, no. and makes it visual yeah and again he's like i said he's also he's creating more of a vibe through some of the visuals that um 
couldn't possibly be written into the book. Right, exactly. Then you have that scene where he's walking through his apartment and everything is being furnished all around him. Yeah, the stuff out of the out of the catalog. Right, yeah. And that's a brilliant scene because it's an excellent visual scene, but it also is telling the story about the character filling his life with all of these useless items. Right. It's great. I'd flip through catalogs and wonder, what kind of dining set defines me as a person? I guess we should bring up, though, before we get too far away from the characters, one character that we no longer have as a part of Fight Club anymore is Meatloaf. Yeah. And he is just extraordinary in this movie. Meatloaf, I was wondering who... Bob was always a favorite character of mine in the book, and I couldn't figure out who should play this guy. And I was watching VH1 behind the scenes, and it was a whole thing on Meatloaf, and I remember watching this thing going, this guy is so sweet. He has this incredible sweetness. You know, and you, I, I always sort of remember him, you know, covered in sweat with long hair, kind of matted to his face, you know, bellowing at the top of his voice. But I saw this special and I thought, wow, he's, there's something amazing about him. And he came in to read, and I think he read for about 20 seconds. And he started doing his little high pitch because he does this much higher voice than he has in real life. Go ahead, Gwenez. You can cry. Because his testicles have been lost. And I remember it literally, it was about 25 seconds. We got through one page, and Edward looked at me and just he's perfect. We got to get him. And so. We offered him the job right there. As Robert Paulson, he's so good in it. And he, you know, he does have that kind of high-pitched voice, too, that, you know, would yep. be affected by estrogen and all that stuff. Right. So comes out perfect. He also has this way of, like, endearing you to him very quickly because very it seems quickly. like an open book. Uh, he's yeah. one of those guys that's going to be completely open and honest with you. And, you know, yeah. he's, just, he's a very loving dude. And you like, yeah, he, you like him right away. Yeah, even. yeah, and he wears his feelings on his sleeve. Right. So later on in the film, when Tyler tells him, you know, you're too old. Fat man. Tits are too big. Get the fuck off my porch. Yeah. That you can tell that really hurts his feelings. You can see it. He feels really dejected. He starts walking away. Right after he says that, he has to turn around and go grab him and right. bring him back in. Yeah, the narrator does. Yeah. Yeah, great scene. But R.I.P. to you, Meatloaf. Yeah. Your name will never be forgotten. His name is Robert Paulson. His name is Robert. Yeah, an early role by uh, Jared Leto as Angel Face, you know, Fantastic. stands out as kind of the threat to uh, the friendship. Yep. They're kind of bromance in a way. Right. And um, He's another one in the film, doesn't have a lot of lines. He shows a lot through his eyes, his face, his body language. Kind of showing he's going to be a powerhouse and yeah. actor. And, and Where's Tyler? Sir, the first rule of Project Mayhem is you do uh, not write the... And then another one of, uh, you know, Fincher's boys, Holt McCallany. Mm-hmm. We talked about him in our Creep Show episode. <laughs> and uh, he plays Bill, the FBI agent in Mindhunter, another yep. David Fincher project. He's also one of the background guys in uh, Alien 3. Yep. And in this, he's the mechanic is basically what he's titled as. Right. And um, yeah, he's the one who's like spraying the hose on the when he's supposed to pick right. a fight with somebody yeah. and, and lose the fight. He's spraying this priest right. with the hose. He and hits the book out of his face and starts spraying face. it. I love that. <laughs> yeah, right. But he's also the, his key part is the I understand in death, a member of Project Mayhem has a name. In referring to the death of Meatloaf's character. Right. 
I was kind of watching his performance throughout the whole thing too and there's right. just kind of like he's doing that cult devotee over enthusiasm kind of thing as yep. you watch him in the background scenes and all that stuff and isn't he in the car with the yep. uh, in the when the when, when they're the, having their argument right, yeah why wasn't I told about Project Mayhem first rule of Project Mayhem is you do not ask questions what are you talking about oh this is uncomfortable because we're in a car with someone arguing but when you see it the second time you're just like he's probably like what in the fuck is up with yeah there's because there's the other two guys in the back too and and you're trying to figure out once you know that they are that tyler and the narrator are the same person and they're in the front seat and these guys are in the back seat and he's kind of talking to because as they're yelling at each other right and you're trying to figure out okay are they hearing the narrator argue with himself? You and I started Fight Club together. Do you remember that? It's as much mine as it is yours, you know. Is this about you and me? Or are they just hearing one side? Right. You and I started Fight Club together. Do you remember that? It's as much mine as it is yours, you know. Fuck that. You, you should have told me. So what is going on, you know? And and they're just yeah. looking back and forth, like unsure of themselves, but still right. very much devoted. Yeah, it's an interesting scene. Fuck what you know. You need to forget about what you know. That's your problem. Forget about what you think you know about life, about friendship, and especially about you and me. We got the guy who who's running Lou's Tavern. He looks, he's got the big uh, mutton chop uh, sideburns, and he, he looks like Neil Young from like 1985 or whatever. Right. He's, he's shutting down the bar, and he's going, Southern man, keep your, keep your head. Don't forget what your Why? Is this film a classic to you? I think because I identified with it and I, like I said, it, it brought up stuff to me that I never really thought about for Because Tyler's addendum is anti-capitalist. Mm-hmm. It's basically, because what's the goal is to blow up all these banks to erase the debt record, reset the debt record and all that stuff. And, you know, advertising is kind of making you feel bad about the person you are. So you try to be someone else and spend money. Right. You know, that's that's what capitalism is all about, right? Exactly, right. I mean, I think that this film probably more accurately depicts my take on advertising and it's and, and what it provides for society that viewpoint is not wrong no no <laughs> too much right. of a good thing poisons you yeah. over time you know what i mean absolutely we're the middle children of history man no purpose or place we have no great war no great depression our great war is a spiritual war our great depression is our lives yeah, the ideology that's presented in the film from Tyler's point of view starts out very gingerly. Right. Basically in that awesome scene at Lou's Tavern where Tyler and the narrator have their first conversation. That's where it all is laid out. Right. Because in that scene, Tyler's basically saying, this is what I think, and this is my belief system. Right, right. Tyler's really fishing in that scene. He's throwing the fishing hook out and waiting for the narrator to bite. And once he does, he's got him. He knows he's got him. Yeah. The trick is, right. how many people in the audience bit that hook a Along with the narrator. That's what's brilliant about that scene. Yeah, right, right. I can remember sitting there just like, wow. I'm right. amazed by what they say. And then especially when you get to that line, which is, I think, one of yours and mine best, is like, fuck Martha Stewart. Martha's polishing the brass on the Titanic. It's, it's all going, going down, down, man. man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's kind of what wraps up the conversation. 
Right. So there's that stuff and just the look of the film. There's that kind of green haze that was right. just kind of popular back in those days. It's a very gritty film. It's, it's just memorable. It's dark. Mm-hmm. It's funny. It's all these things. Right. And uh, the performances are all really good. And it struck a chord with me at a certain age. Right. So it is a classic to me. Yes. Right. Well said. And it's a classic for me for the same exact reasons. But I will add that I love the film right. like the book. Just because it's an unapologetic comment, not only on the failures and dangers of the mixtures of ambition and ego, but also it's not afraid or ashamed to wear its non-PC beliefs and comments and flaws completely on its chest out in the open for all to see, with its middle finger extended for all who look and judge. (laughs) And I don't have to agree with all of its points or ideas to find it absolutely fascinating. And also, I find it a work of art. Yeah. And maybe it isn't as bold as we think it is right now. We just think that because of the current PC climate. Mm-hmm. But it amazes me that something like this, which seems to stand its ground during this kind of climate, that it's not afraid to be canceled by culture. Yes. And even right. continues to accrue an even bigger fan base. Yeah. This was mine and Tyler's gift. Our gift to the world. You know, I am a blue-collar worker, as I mentioned. I'm right. a mechanic, right? And right. so... A lot of this is about people that support you are the ones that actually are the ones that are dangerous because right. as long as you're keeping us fat and happy and stupid, right. you have us in control. But then, well, you know. Well, I mean, when someone comes up and really starts rattling the cages of everyone, yeah, it's like that line that Tyler has in the film, we are the ones. We cook your meals, we haul your trash, we connect your calls, we drive your ambulances, we guard you while you sleep. Do not fuck with us. And even when I first saw this up till now, I always saw this part of Tyler's message not as a big, huge uprising, but as a stand up for yourself. If you feel like you do good work and you need a raise, Mm -hmm. ask for that raise. Don't be meek about it or anything along those lines. Stand up for yourself. Don't sit back and take it. Stand up for yourself and get what you need. Go out and get it. Yeah. A parallel can be drawn to this to what happened on January 6th of mm. 2021. Right, right. That's not what we're talking no. about. I'm not, not necessarily talking about the government uprising no. or anything like that. And and uh, I'm pretty content with <laughs> keeping things the way they are as far as that goes. <laughs> right, yeah. The problem is, is it's, it's business. It's big business and corporations. And that's what this movie's speaking out against. Right. And, and again, going back to that kind of like uh, making you feel bad for not owning the stuff you want. Right, yeah. Because what are they doing? Like we, like we mentioned earlier, they're going against the banks and all that stuff. And mm-hmm. ultimately, it doesn't matter what kind of country you live in. It's the banks that are causing a lot of the, right. you know what I mean? The, right. the problems and, and, and the control is in the money. Yeah, you know? right. Well, so obviously, as we've also been talking about with the narrator, ultimately, he is mentally ill, right? right. He is split personalities. And right. what we know about split personalities is a stronger personality will come out to defend the person who feels like he can't defend himself, right? right. And then the person will jump between that. They'll have multiple personalities, and they'll all be different. There'll be a young little kid, and then right. there'll be one of the opposite gender or one of, like, fluid sexuality. All kinds of things right. will happen. But th- in, th- in this particular scenario, it's just the man himself and then his alter ego that he wishes he was. Right, yeah, right? powerful personality takes over me. And I, it kind of seems to me like whatever's causing his insomnia is ultimately kind of also causing the, the split, too. Right. When you have insomnia, you're never really asleep and you're never really awake. 
And also mental health, of course, in 99 going into the 2000s was just starting to be a topic that was finally starting to be more of a mainstream discussion, yeah. not only in movies and TV, but also just a normal conversation. Right. So the fact that the story is addressing this in, of course, a very theatrical way, but right. it's a main theme along with some of the basic themes in this film, like depression and coping. Right. And also the coping is, is a part of that whole support groups thing in this mm. film, which is a big part yeah. of the film. And it's even hitting on, in my opinion, depression and even suicide due to some of the comments that the narrator makes, like, Every time the plane banked too sharply on takeoff for landing, I prayed for a crash or a mid-air collision. Oh, yeah. Which is a telling statement and a controversial topic even today, which I feel makes this film even more timeless than it already is. Right, right. Because, you know, with the rise of things like Talkspace and BetterHelp in the last few years and then the stress that the COVID pandemic has put on everybody. Right. And, uh, you know, you you can see in the news that people are just cracking up, right? Yeah. Whereas, like, in this time period of 99, the mental illness thing is kind of, like, considered a weakness. Right. And so that's where I think the fighting and showing your getting in touch with your masculinity is his way of kind of right. internally combating the idea, with, like subconsciously combating right. his mental illness, you know what I mean? Right. And this is where the fantasy of Fight Club sounds like a great idea, because like you said, yeah, there's, there is ego, and yeah. there is, you know, you want to win the fight, but ultimately it's not about winning in the, re- in the reality. Right. What happened in the real world after this movie was fight clubs did become a thing. It right. became like a thing where it was starting to come up on YouTube and stuff right. where guys would be getting into fights in the backyards and everybody would be watching. It's always like the fantasy of the novel and the fantasy of the book never translates to the what happens in reality no. because it becomes dangerous. It becomes right. toxic masculinity, as we we're going to say. It's dudes, yeah. I'm going to beat the fuck out of you and, and then things getting out of control right. and Uh, an insurrection against the Capitol building, <laughs> as we mentioned earlier, right. and that's the negative part of it. That's that's what happens when that's that Gordon Gecko effect, where people in the real world right. see something in fantasy, and then they want to be that thing, and then they add their sick and twisted humanity to it, right, and ruin the whole fucking thing, right. It it never turns out like it is in the movies or the stories right. and all that stuff, right? So you can romanticize the stuff in the movie it will never translate to the real world. Correct. I was so wrapped up in the film to remember the audience reaction on the night that I first saw it in the theater. Right, right. And I really wish I could remember how well it went over if the parts that I find funny actually hit with the audience and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But the film is so dark at times, including the violence. I, I can't imagine it getting a huge, great reaction by everyone in the theater. Oh, right. Especially like what we were talking about when we were talking about the deeper themes of the film. Plus the in-your-face violence, yeah. along with the non-linear storytelling. I, yeah. I, I can just imagine people sitting in their seats thinking, will this movie just sit still for a couple minutes? Jeez. It might have been why it wasn't so successful, because it's a dark movie yeah. that's talking about mental illness. Right. And it and is nihilistic, it, and it is yeah, yeah, all of these right. things, and people probably felt, you know, appalled and threatened by it, and the violence is all. Of, you can point yeah. at so many things of why you shouldn't like this movie. <laughs> right, all right. 
would this movie be able to be come out today and be successful? And and that's a great question too. And I think that if we ask a few other questions along the same lines, we're gonna get a definitive answer. And these questions are are ones that pop into my head every single time I watch it. So like the first one would be: This movie was made in 1999. Yeah. 2001 comes along and 9/11 happens. Of right, right. If this movie was made after 2001, I think even today you couldn't do that plane scene where the narrator imagines the crash of the two planes together. Right. That's right. Yeah, because he does. They show the plane crashing into the other. Right. I just I don't think you could get away with that by a studio anymore. They could be just because you see the effects of the crash and the people inside the plane. What is happening? Yeah, to them. being ripped out piece by piece. Yeah, yeah, right. Then uh, just take that other scene where the narrator's boss brings him that piece of paper that has the Fight Club rules on it that somebody in the at the narrator's work left in the work copier, and the narrator goes on that long rant about. I'd be very very careful who you talk to about that because the person who wrote that is dangerous and this button-down oxford cloth psycho might just snap and then stalk from office to office with an armalite ar-10 carbine gas-powered semi-automatic weapon pumping round after round into colleagues and co-workers this might be someone you've known for years someone very very close to you and I feel with how mass shootings are these days, that's a little too sensitive. There would be yeah. no way that a company would let you do that scene anymore. It's just too controversial. That's true. That's true. And all of a sudden, the scene just took on this completely different. It was one of those things where, in the early cuts of the movie, when we show it to people, they would laugh. The notion of Edward, you know, physically threatening the boss was a funny one. And then all of a sudden, you know, we had the Columbine massacre, and then the scene became. It was amazing to watch, you know, how public opinion gets swayed by tragedy. And then when we started previews, of course, it just wasn't funny anymore. People were really kind of very uncomfortable and very nervous, but it was a scene that we couldn't lift. And then even getting into something like the character Meatloaf plays, Robert Paulson, yeah. he is introduced. Bob had bitch tits. And I'm sorry, but these days that's called body shaming. So I would bet that that would be changed or deleted. Right, exactly. Like basically all the scenes we mentioned. And if they weren't changed, it would cause a social media backlash, which that's no true. company really wants to deal with that yeah. stuff anymore. So yeah. I, I just don't know if that stuff could exist. Well, and just the fact that it's a hyper-masculine movie that's like all about mostly dudes with only one woman in the whole thing. And uh, I mean, ultimately... The story is a love story, and it's about a, right. a guy who <laughs> is so insecure and so right. whatever. He has to create this other... Because Tyler doesn't really start to take over until he meets Marla. Right. You know, there might be stuff going on a little bit, but he's just... Right. Well, you just see in the flashes and all that stuff. Right. Because M Marla... You know, the reality is he sees Marla, and I think it's almost love it's at fuel. first sight. Yeah, it's love at first sight for him, though. Right. And he doesn't know what to do with that. I can never be good enough to get something like that. Yeah. What could get something like that? Right. And Tyler's there. Yeah. You know, because the little blips that we see all through the movie, that's Tyler, in essence, in my opinion, yeah. saying, you know, I'm right here. Waiting Just for you. Just give me a chance. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And as you so very brilliantly, I think, brought up when we've talked about this before, is in a way what could be interpreted 
when we get to the Paper Street house and we see all of those writings in the notebook, Jack's this and Jack's that, and all of those notebooks and everything, how, how, whoever was squatting there, you brought up something. Go ahead. Well, I just thought, what if during all these bouts of insomnia before Tyler becomes fully realized, uh, what right. if that is his intermediate personality? That it is the narrator has been going to Paper Street house all this time for a long period before he meets Tyler. He's not aware of it, but he's in like this zombie insomnia zone and he's going in there and he's writing all these notes or whatever. Right. Because Tyler's very at home when we finally see him. So obviously, since Tyler is him, yeah, he has to be used to going there and getting around and everything. So right. who knows how long he's inhabited that place. Right. The previous occupant had been a bit of a shut-in. Hey, man, what are you reading? Listen to this. It's an article written by an organ in the first person. I am Jack's medulla oblongata. Without me, Jack cannot regulate his heart rate, blood pressure, or breathing. There's a whole series of these. I am Jill's nipple. And, and so my thought was, what if it was... The narrator's been going there for probably a few years prior. Right. Getting ready to crack up. Right. And what if Jack... Really is him, yeah. Right. And so that's something that you've brought up that every time I watch it now, yeah. I see that. I'm like, oh, that could... That, that could be the start of something that just didn't come to fruition. Right, right. I guess there are not fans of the film who critique it against basically promoting hypermasculinity and violence and all that right. stuff. And, and the book. And the book, too. Yeah. Yes, that's true, I guess. No, I can see it. I could definitely step outside my absolute adoring love for the film and see the critiques. Yeah. Doesn't mean I agree with them, but I can see them from their perspective. Like I was just saying, fight clubs did actually come out of this. That's right. The thing is, is like, I guess Tyler is supposed to be a bad guy. Maybe we're just... Yeah, that's what I'm saying. We're, I'm, we're sucked into his charisma as, as... I'm able to step outside of that and maybe think, you know what? Maybe I'm I'm a cult I'm a, I'm a bit of a space monkey myself. Exactly. They, they, yeah. So, you know, maybe we shouldn't be commenting on it. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> we're not a clear, a clear enough mind to, because uh, I'm going to give this shit a pass. All right. The thing is, is... Because of the fact that there's no women in the movie, the toxic masculinity in this movie is not targeted towards women. The only, except for Marla's character, is getting right. caught up in this mess. Right. But it's mostly just dudes being dudes amongst themselves because they're all lost boys. The whole thing, right. the whole thing is, you know, the, the 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 core to the movie is our fathers were our models for God. If our fathers bailed, what does that tell you about God? <laughs> right. And which is an awesome line. I love that line in the movie. It's one of my favorites. So right. also playing off of what you just said a minute ago. If you use that term, lost boys, and you look at even Peter Pan. His lost boys are young boys who behave immaturely, and some of them are bullies, and they're without prim or proper manners. They are raw and uncivilized, and they are kids. Right, right, right. So add 15 to 20 years on those boys, and they're space monkeys. Space monkeys. Ready to sacrifice themselves for the greater good. Space monkeys are boys in Neverland who just didn't age internally, yeah. mentally, I mean. <laughs> 
just a little bit of pixie dust. It's also coming out of a time too, I would say the 70s, but then really the 80s is when divorce starts to become a thing. Yeah, I'm a child of divorce. Yeah. I, I was raised with my mother, not my father. So yeah, right. I totally identified with it on that level. Exactly. And there's a, a complete full generation now of children being raised by only one parent. And, and th- right. this is kind of talking about the toxic masculinity comes from the fact that they don't have a father figure in their life and they grew up resenting their fathers because of that right and the fighting isn't like i said isn't necessarily to be more powerful than someone it's it's like a a release from feeling dead in life you know what right. i mean it, it makes you feel alive right from your cubicle life that you right. you're living it's kind of like if office space they started doing a fight club after work to become alive right damn it feels good to be a gangster And, and the thing, too, is a lot of the things that I think people see when Tyler or the narrator or some of the guys are talking back and forth, and they're talking about, like, dumb shit or, or disgusting shit. Maybe they, they think that they're you know, talking about, who would you fight, Gandhi, and stuff like that. That might offend some people. And stuff right. Like that. But these are the dumb, I can personally say, these are the dumb shit that when you get next to another guy yeah. who is on the same rhythm as you and your masculinity right. is going and everything, you start talking about dumb That's shit. Like, like, yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, the, the other the other thing too that's fucked up in the movie is when Tyler takes that convenience store clerk and puts a gun to his head. Right. And basically scares him. Scares him. But the guy doesn't know that. The guy thinks he's going to murder him. But what he's doing right. is breathing life into the guy to kind of wake him up. The same way Fight Club woke right. the narrator up. Come on, this isn't funny. That wasn't funny. What the fuck was the point of that? Tomorrow will be the most beautiful day of Raymond Castle's life. His breakfast will taste better than any meal you and I have ever tasted. Right, yeah. So this is exactly what I was talking about earlier when I was saying that sometimes in life, those things in life come along and smack you or punch you in the face to wake you up out of your normal mundane life pattern. Yeah. When those things happen in life, it's usually organic in how they appear or uh, the circumstances or choices that you make make those things happen. And so what Tyler, in essence, is doing here is forcing those choices into your life upon you in an extreme and scary way. We're not justifying it by any means. We're talking about the methods of Tyler and how they grow in extreme measures because he gets bolder and yeah. bolder. The next step. He starts get becoming a little narcissistic, too. Right. Like thinking he can like, change the world. Because what's everyone's biggest flaw? Yeah. We're all human. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> What happens to every cult leader? A lot of a right. lot of cult leaders they come from a place of endearing, like what well, I can help people. Let's say right. that, uh, and then it becomes I can change people. Then it becomes I've changed you, and then right. it becomes you're mine now, and then <laughs> and then it becomes this, you're having sex with me because I said so. You know right. that's that's the progression of almost every cult leader. Exactly. They don't start out that way. Right. It's ego driven, and that's what happens with Tyler. I think. Now, if the members know that he thinks of them this way, why? I stay right 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 and that indeed does follow if you look up some of the psychology on cult followers the term we will follow you to the end is often used yeah. in cults and it is no different here right he's made them feel alive yeah 
in a very masculine way, right? But, it, but like what I was trying to say is this whole thing is it's, it's exploring the concept that a lot of the men of the 90s are basically 80s and 70s children of divorce. Right. And what does that mean? Because that, that's never happened before in the history of the world. Right. Is this a possible conclusion we can draw from this? You know what I mean? In the, in the right. time of 1999, when this right. first, first wave of divorce children are growing up. Right. Just that one scene alone where the narrator beats Angel. Where'd you go, psycho boy? I felt like destroying something beautiful. Right. That's a gruesome, hard scene to watch. And it should be. Yeah. It shouldn't be something that you, he has a few bruises on his face like a Rocky movie or something right, like that. Right. Where you're like, okay, and get up and walk it off kind of thing. No, he's fucked up. Yeah. You know. From there on, and yet he's still devoted. He, you can right. tell the angel face has an anger and an angst yep. towards the narrator, but he's still yep. 100% devoted to him. He's right. like, you ruined my face, but I still believe in you. Right, exactly. I felt like putting a bullet between the eyes of every panda that wouldn't screw to save its species. I mean, you got to figure this too. The humanity is fucked up as bad as it is today. There's a reason why. And it's because those who were the most violent and most cunning and most devious are the ones who survived the wars, conquered the lands, and procreated. Right. So that's, that's the DNA that has been spread throughout the world. Right, the yeah. nastiest, angriest, most brutal, most cunning, most devious right. are the ones who have survived and procreated made more nasty mo you know so let's go back to that line that we started out with fucker setting up franchises <laughs> exactly that's true you got Genghis Khan out there. What what do they say about Genghis Khan? Like a, a huge percentage of people are like something like twenty five percent of China is like descended from him because he's had what? like uh, I think a hundred wives and multiple children with all of them. Yeah, right. So I mean, I'm not excusing human behavior. Right. We need to grow up. Oh yeah. Well, but, I mean, as much as man can, I guess. But yeah. Really, I mean. This is what I love talking about this movie for because it right. opens up so many avenues of conversation like our society, right. past and present. But the thing is, is like what our society has done for us with leveling off violence a little bit. Right. There's been waves and all that stuff, but we're not living in the dark ages anymore where people right. were dying constantly and getting murdered or axed. Our 70s in New York. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. We're in a very um, relaxed society as far as the history of the earth and um right. i think movies what movies do is allow us to experience and yep. fit the craving of that dna that's been put into us by these right. conquerors and warlords and and whatever why are why are horror movies a huge business yeah because people they don't want, and I'm not saying people want to go out there and kill people like Michael Myers or Jason. Yeah, right, or right. Things, but it gets something out. It gets a fear out of you. Yeah. It's fun to be afraid sometimes. It's fun to see it from the, the killer side, and it's also right. fun to see it from the victim side. And right. that's why horror movies will never go away. So Fight Club's about a lot of things, but is it mainly a love story? It's a, an incredibly layered story. A no Chuck Palahniuk novel is one thing. It's no. multiple things with a thread, yeah. several threads leading through it. Yeah, I think the main gist of the story 
is the love story. Right. Everything happens because he's, I think, honestly, love at first sight with Marla. And he right. doesn't know it, and he doesn't know how to deal with it. Right. So that that is. She is the, the love story is the core of it, but there's so much being said about society in this movie. I'm, I'm trying to tell you that I'm sorry. Because what I've come to realize is that I, I really like you, Marla. You do? I really do. I care about you, and I don't want anything bad to happen to you because of me. And I also think that it is a love story of self-love. Yeah. And it's finding yes. yourself. Right. Exactly. Narrator and Tyler is a love story, as in by the time they get to the end, you, yeah. you really see this connection between the two that merge into one. Right. And he finds himself. Right. That line that Tyler says to him at the end when he realizes he's losing control. Yeah. It's just like, hey, it's you and me. He's using that to control him, but... Right. He, yeah. I don't know. I, I, I get that. Yeah. I, he, he doesn't want to die. Right. At the end, it, it comes down to those two guys. What emotion does the narrator feel when he sees the angel? Yeah. And Angel and Tyler have this kind of connection. Right. And he's like, he's feeling jealous and betrayed. Jealous. Yeah. Oh, right. yeah. What emotion does he feel even when Marla comes in? Right. And it's Tyler and him. Oh, yeah. Super yeah. jealous. Right. And yeah. He's jealous, and he's also commenting on how it's I'm passing notes between my arguing parents again, right. kind of thing. So right. there's, you know, he's raising emotions from his childhood. Right, right. It's a very layered story. It's also, like I said, it has its messages about our society, about mm. capitalist society, right? Yeah, and corporatocracy. Oh yeah. <laughs> And just divorce, you know, the, like yeah. we said, the being children of divorce and... and uh, there, There's just so many things in the film that resonates with, with just me alone. Right. Divorce is one and insecurity. Yeah. If you're just looking at it on a base level, it's just a love story, then you probably won't find a lot to like about right. it. Right. Or if you're wanting a fight movie, it's not that either. It's all of those things. Right. And way yeah. more. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's important. The self-love part is important. Yeah. Yeah, because once it really is, once the narrator figures everything out and he figures out he is Tyler, then he realizes, oh, I do love myself and I don't need, I can absorb him back into myself. Yeah, right. And also before the narrator ends Tyler, yeah. there's a scene where he's trying to pretend he is Tyler with the cops who are about to cut his balls off. Yeah, yeah. All right, I am Tyler Durden. Listen to me. I'm giving you a direct order. We are aborting this mission right now. You said you would definitely say that. And it just doesn't work. And because Tyler isn't nervous. Right. And he hasn't absorbed that part right. of Tyler yet. He hasn't fully integrated, yeah. First person comes out this fucking door gets a gets a lit salad, you understand? So juxtapose that with how he is after he absorbs Tyler and those two Project Mayhem members that brought Marla to him. Yeah. They're there with him and he knows exactly what to say. Exactly right. how to talk, knows what the plan is, what to tell them to yeah. do, all of that stuff. And it's just so very beautifully done. Right. Yeah, because they're all really concerned because he shot himself in the face right. to kill off Tyler. And Right. And I remember even when I first saw it, just like, so what happened there? Yeah. Just because he shot his cheek? <laughs> yeah, right. He's kind of, it's symbolic. Right. Yeah. Why do you want to put a gun to your head? Not my head, Tyler. Our head. The ending of this movie to me gives me goosebumps every time. Yep. Because the buildings start to explode or whatever, and he turns to Marla, and they both jump right. you know, when the buildings start to blow, and then they look at each other and he goes, You met me at a very strange time in my life. 
other than that. Yeah. Too. Oh man, the Pixies. <laughs> right, right, right. Where is my mind? Yeah, it, that song just uh, sets a tone. Right. It changes the, sh- it shifts the feeling of the movie, you know, and just right. very gritty and raw. Right. Uh, exactly. Where is my mind? Where is my mind? Where is my mind? Well, and just that song in particular, it wasn't very. It's become a huge thing. It's yeah. been re- redone in that classical piano thing that's gorgeous. Uh, right. I was a fan of Bass Nectar before he got Me Too to death, and uh, right. he did a very cool rendition of that song, uh, which mixed mm-hmm. multiple versions of it, and his version of it, and the piano version of it, and yeah, it was so cool. Right. But at that time, that that song had kind of lost its way and kind of gotten buried, and right. it brought new life to that song in a way, and and it was like a perfect fit. Yeah, no, it fits. It, it totally embodies that. When I hear it, whenever I hear that song in anything, because it's been in several movies since too. But yeah. like that piano one that you've mentioned, that that's really big online, right? On YouTube videos and stuff like that. Anytime I hear it, though, I immediately see that image of them standing Just in front the, of that, holding one. hands. Yeah. Staring out the window. Such a beautiful, beautiful yeah. thing. I'm a little verklempt. <laughs> <laughs> They're in love. <laughs> now we get to something that I think is another, actually, I'd go as far as to call it a character in the movie, and that's the Dust Brothers. Yeah. Do the musical score for this movie, which I think is unlike anything I'd ever heard before and right. since. Right, right. So the Dust Brothers are kind of electronic producers way before the term EDM became a thing. You know what I mean? Right. They were around in the early 90s in L.A. And what got them really cooking was when the Beastie Boys split from Def Jam because they don't like how they're being handled and kind of being told how to be. Ad-Rock takes off to L.A. to become an actor, and that doesn't go very well. And then... He eventually gets the other two guys to come out with him, and they start trying to make music again. And um, they hook up with the Dust Brothers, who is Easy Mike and King Gizmo, the, or what they call themselves, right? And they collaborate together and make Paul's Boutique, which is considered by a lot of hip-hop aficionados the best hip-hop album ever made. And it wasn't a success at the time. It, it was one of those slow builds, but you know, so the Dust Brothers helped them produce that album and all that stuff. And they kind of helped the Beastie Boys kind of reinvent themselves to become the king of the 90s that they became. You know what I mean? They were everywhere at one point. Right, right. Then they come into play in the end of the 90s and uh, the, the Dust Brothers to score this film with David Fincher and uh, to great effect. It's amazing yeah. because Fincher's really good about always picking the right person, it seems, to do his music. He's not one, like he has been, as of more recently, he has been sticking with the same yeah. person. Trent Reznor. Yeah. You, you get to this movie and he pulls the, the Dust Brothers and they do this score that is so all over the place, mm-hmm. instrumentally. Instrumentally. 
digital sounds yeah. and all of this stuff it's so great because it has this like kind of rockish sound to it sometimes uh-huh. and it immediately goes into like this muzak kind of thing right and right. then goes into something else. it's just it's an, an amazing score that's as sporadic as the character's mind in the film <laughs> right 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 yeah <laughs> Yeah, I always think of that. Right. Right. Whenever I think of the score, that's the bit that comes to my head. Right. Anytime I think of the score, I always go to that opening theme that they do because I absolutely love what the Dust Brothers do with that. Yeah. Because it starts out with that classical kind of sounding music, and then it has that record scratch. Yeah. They even had a second version of the opening main theme that they, they made. That was good, but when you hear it against what they picked for the actual main theme, you can understand, like, oh, yeah, I get I get why they picked this one. Yeah, and then, yeah, and then you don't really hear from them again you know right yeah and who knows they might just be doing producing now i don't know what they're doing anymore yeah what is the true message of the film to you yeah it's it's hard to pin them down because there's a couple the things you own end up owning you is a huge oh man line that really says it all and i'm still victim to it today yeah me too and um but also give yourself a little more credit the self-love thing it's not a lesson i learned (laughs) but the application of putting faith in yourself and believing in yourself because it's in you you know right right there's there that is like the message there it's hard yeah oh it's really hard it's really hard yeah and yeah and one of the things i struggle with too is that i get lack of confidence and then overconfidence and i think of myself am i just telling myself to be confident or (laughs) am i being overconfident and kind of like a jerk right you know right yeah, there is a fine line between right. confidence and arrogance, right? I mean, that's something right. I've been struggling with since I'm six years old, and I'll be struggling with until I'm probably dead. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. And what what the narrator finds out ultimately is he all he had to do was believe in himself rather than put him faith in another person to do right. it for him because he was that person the whole time. Right. Okay, you are now firing a gun at your imaginary friend one of the scenes that I really loved and responded to, especially when I was younger, the message in it was when Tyler steps into the frame and he starts giving that speech about you're not your fucking khakis and this and that. You were the all singing, all dancing crap of the world. But still, I love that scene and some of the things he's saying in that scene. I mean, I love it so much I have it in my phone. But the, I think the drug of americana is so much stronger that oh yeah you, it, you just you remember it every now and then but you're living the life that he's telling you not to live you know? like i just said i have it on my iphone <laughs> <laughs> right right yeah do i need a space phone that can look up anything and then whim <laughs> right probably right. not right but I sure do love it. Do we even need a podcast? No. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> do we really think people out there give a shit what we're saying? <laughs> no. Probably not. <laughs> yeah. I mean, hopefully they think we're entertaining, but 
But then again, we gotta we yeah. have to believe in ourselves. Yeah, you Come believe on. in ourselves, yeah. Derek. We need to believe right. in ourselves. But I, I mean, I believe in us so much. I'm recording right now. <laughs> yeah, but we need you guys to believe in us too. <laughs> to make us feel whole. One, I need your love. <laughs> well, as long as you know, Tim, yeah. that you're not your fucking khakis, if you even own them. Do you own khakis? No. Not in a long time. Well, see, there you go. That's your first step. Right, right. Way to go, space monkey. (laughs) Smack myself in the back (laughs) of the head. Favorite scenes. Yeah. What do you got? You go first. Okay. I love the scene in Lou's tavern. Yes. When Lou comes down. Yeah, to the basement. Tyler. It's Tyler not only telling everyone in the club, don't yeah. come and help me when he's beating me, but he distinctly puts his hand up towards the narrator. Like, yeah. I don't need your help right, right now. Right. You can't come here or you're right. not going to be able to take this kind of thing. Right. Who are you? Oh, my. Yeah. There's a sign on the front that says, Lou's tap. I'm fucking Lou. Who the fuck are you? Tyler Durden. I love the scene where he reconnects with Bob. Yes. And Bob is telling him, I've got a new thing now. And then right. he's like, look at my face. You know, I'm a member, right. Bob. <laughs> you know, yeah. Right. The genuine look of, like, acceptance and happiness right. that comes over Meatloaf's or Bob's face when he finds out. Oh, you know, and he's like licking. Right. I think he's like licking his fingers after. I was just about to say, it's such a great, I love little character things. Right. And the way he's holding the donut. Right. He tosses it away and yeah. licks his fingers before he grabs him for a hug. Yeah. <laughs> love that. Yeah. How are you, Bob? Better than I've ever been in my whole life. I love the scene where Marla's talking about the bridal dress she's wearing and all that yep. stuff. Because she's making a, a, an important statement that's very on Tyler's level right there. Yep. I got this dress at a thrift store for one dollar. It was worth every penny. It's a bridesmaid's dress. Someone loved it intensely for one day. Then tossed it like a Christmas tree. So special. Then, bam, it's on the side of the road. And again, that's when you do see he says that shit to her, you know, are we done here kind of thing or whatever he says at that particular time that and right. you can see her mood shift and yeah, she gets yeah. upset and it's, it's sad. Yeah. I also really love the lie scene too. There's something about that. Oh man. What are we doing tonight? Tonight? We make soap. You know, I have a, a sleeve tattoo uh, mm. that I've gotten over this year. I did several hours of work in multiple sittings, two days in a row, <laughs> mm. and then go back up again two months later, seven hour days, two days in a row, and there's a lot to that. I tried not to think of the words serum or flesh. Stop it! Or just living with it, living with the pain, and just, because mm-hmm. after a certain point, you can't find a happy place anymore, right. and you're just like, scrunching your face going oh there's only an hour and a half left (laughs) (laughs) and so that meant a lot to me especially after this year when i got this sleeve so right i mean i I love them all i love all of them no that's what i'm saying yeah just so many so many of them and everything yeah we probably keep going (laughs) what is your opinion on why the movie did not do well when it was first released well it's complicated and it 
jumps around a lot and right you know it does it's a movie that takes multiple viewings i think you know people were probably off put a bit by the violence specifically that lose tavern scene when brad pitt gets the shit beat out of him on purpose right and uh, is laughing about it the whole way through i think that probably threw some people off you know what i oh, mean yeah. and maybe because in order to trick you it wasn't advertised how can you advertise that movie right, though? You, you can't. Know, you, you, That's you would, why I think it was a blessing. Without giving it away. Yeah, it is a blessing. But but at the same time, the yeah. people who aren't into that kind of shit are going into it thinking it's something else. And, right. And are disappointed, you know. Oh, so yeah, maybe there's sure. that, you know. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a lot of, of, of that. And I think it's just people who just... The, uh, the ending that we got that we were so happy with and stuff, I could... T- easily see people just being like that's it that's the end right yeah there's not because there's no what happened right right and he shot himself and then and you know i mean well and not unlike a lot of kubrick films if we're going to compare david fincher's style to kubrick's style um those movies don't often hit with people right away either they grow over time you know what i mean and 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 this is a layered enough movie that i think it probably took that Rewatching and the home viewing thing for it to to really find its audience. I'd like to thank the Academy. Is this not a good time? All right. This is where things start getting weird. <laughs> um, we mentioned it a little bit earlier. So, let's just break it down real quick. Yeah. Ninety six, the book comes out. Yeah. Ninety nine, the movie comes out. Yeah. Two thousand fifteen, a graphic novel sequel comes out by the original author. Chuck Palahniuk puts out a right. graphic novel, basically called Fight Club Two. People are already talking about, are you going to write a sequel to the book? And I've sworn I would never do that. I can't imagine something that'd be less fun than writing a sequel to a book I've already written. So right off the bat, I just want us all to be on the same page here that. When the DVD of Fight Club first came out, it had a commentary on it from Chuck Palahniuk and the screenwriter of the film, Jim Ewells. Mm -hmm. The reason I say that is because if you haven't read many or any of Chuck's books, you might not understand that he has a way of poking fun at things in a serious manner. Right. And the graphic novel for Fight Club 2 definitely seems like it's kind of poking fun at either the movie Fight Club or people who like the movie Fight Club. There's almost like, why didn't my book do as well as the movie <laughs> or whatever? Yeah, well, and I mean, in reading the graphic novel of Fight Club 2, it's really hard to tell if he's just being playful, giving it a playful ribbing um, on the movie Fight Club, or if there's a genuine, like, unpleasantness towards the movie Fight Club, or maybe just towards the fans of the movie Fight Club, because they can be an annoying group. They might make a whole three-hour podcast about how much they love the movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, as I was saying before, Chuck is on the uh, commentary for the movie with the screenwriter of the movie, and he is extremely complimentary about how much he likes what he did with the book and the material and everything and transferred it over to the film. And even in the graphic novel, he's even borrowing visual things for the graphic novel from the film, like the Paper Street house looks the same. Like the one in the movie, yeah. Right, yeah, and and with the visual references from the film, Chuck is also commenting on the film in the graphic novel as well. And kind of jabs at it yeah, too well, yeah and that's <laughs> that's what i mean it's hard to tell if he's taking serious jabs at the film in the graphic novel or is chuck just being playful like he does in some of his uh, novels yeah 
Yeah. Right. So, I mean, right. it's it's hard to believe he's being serious after he gushed over the movie so much. But, and, oh, and, Mar- and Marla is more like the movie Marla. Oh, yeah, yeah. Than yeah. she is the novel Marla. Yeah, yeah. That, that, and that's what I mean. He, it seems like he's trying to blur the lines between the original novel and the movie. Yeah. And that just gets jarring to me. And w- what's really jarring is how off the charts it gets with the fantastical stuff. I mean, in the original novel, Chuck uses some fantastical stuff, for sure, but yeah. in this graphic novel sequel, Fight Club 2, it, it goes off the wall with, like, the most really out there fantastical... It's like, fairy tale stuff. Yeah. yeah. No, it is. It really... It, it's hard to wrap your head around some of the stuff, like, why is he going this broad with stuff? And I, I was completely taken out of the story just by how absurd things were starting to get in the story yeah it's like yeah yeah. i mean one of the things in the graphic novel that it takes a character from the original novel and the movie chloe who is the one who has cancer and is gonna die and is trying to come on to whoever will have sex with her because that's all she wants well she's in this one though but yeah chloe survives and she's pretending to be a progeria person who's in a group meeting for progeria people because marla's still going to meetings oh what i guess the the conceit is it's 10 years later right the narrator is taken on the name sebastian he's taken pills to suppress his psychosis or whatever right yeah and and uh they she 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 got pregnant Marla. too yeah. while they were having sex during the fight club thing yeah and they have a 10 year old boy and right. there's this whole fucking kidnapping scheme oh, it, it turns I, out well, that uh, she's yeah so 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 <laughs> marla and the narrator they're married they have a kid he's 10 years old and then the kidnapping thing happens and this kidnapping is pushed into this part of the story that like we were saying chloe comes into it and she's like yeah. still alive and has been undercover with this other force and it's just it goes off the rails. Tyler has built up this huge persona to where he's like a gajillionaire and has a castle. And then the story just goes off the fucking rails. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, it does. And that's what I mean. It just gets so fantastical in the story. And it gets really meta because Chuck ends up writing himself into, into the, the book. book. Yeah. Right. Like while the story's going on, Chuck is writing the story. It's like. Or like people are interrupting him while he's writing it. Mm-hmm. And then Marla even shows up in oh, yeah. his room while with the other women he's yeah. consulting with. and he she ends up talking to him about the story that you're reading and it's just it gets so out there and meta i mean th- there's even this scene where a group of people show up at i believe it's chuck's house mm-hmm. and they're protesting they don't like the end of the story that he's writing that you're reading yeah and he's arguing with them on the, this point and uh, it comes up that one of the people even says that you're ruining the story and he said well didn't you like the original novel and they said there was a novel right right so he's taking a punch at the people who i think don't know that there was a novel they just like the movie or maybe people who just like the movie and not the novel or something like right that. right so it just it just gets all weird i don't i don't understand. <laughs> and then robert paulson oh yeah comes out of the grave uh, with the half of his head missing right and, and you're like it's what? like well, i don't what, i don't understand what you're doing <laughs> what are you doing all right are you, you're making fun of the success of the movie well, or <laughs> I don't understand. Uh, That's the thing. The movie wasn't a success when it first came out. It found success in its cult status, no pun intended. But yeah, and uh, yeah, I'll just just go as far as to say this. All right, I read it, and I will 
absolutely comment on how beautiful the art design is. Yeah. And artists yeah. are Cameron Stewart and David Mack. They did a, a phenomenal job on this thing. Yeah. And uh, as far as the story, Chuck, I uh, I guess I just didn't get it, man. I don't like it. I'm <laughs> going to say it. I don't like it. I don't like the graphic novel at all. <laughs> all right. Well, there you go. That's uh, straight from Tim's lips to your ears. Uh, yeah, yeah, I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't crazy about it either. But apparently there were some people, and I'm happy that Chuck, that's his characters. He created them, so he gets to do whatever he wants with them. And I'm glad he had an outlet for it. So Well, and... and- I think you and I too, mm-hmm. you, you know, we like the ambiguous as we've talked about in other things. Uh, oh, yeah, right. Where some people don't, and and I think the movie just needs to be yeah. let alone to where it is. Yeah, totally. Yeah, you and I came to the movie first before we even knew there was a novel. So that's yours and my first love, if you will. We have a bigger affinity for the, the movie. movie forever. And I love the end of the movie. Them holding hands, looking out that window, watching those buildings being blown up, right. and the music swelling. I just uh, there's no other better ending for this story than that for me and I don't want to know what happens after the credits start rolling and the theater lights go up I don't want to know that no it's perfect the way it is yeah but for all of you out there who like or prefer the novel or the even the graphic novel then Chuck got to do that for you guys so good for him mm-hmm. I guess it did well enough because in 2019 there was a Fight Club 3 in comic book form so oh, really there you go you can uh, run out there and check it out if you want to be confused or maybe who knows you might like it yeah uh, yeah it was a frustrating movie because it uh, it raises my standards for movies and now I watch movies and I'm like why aren't movies better written and better filmed and there is not one shot in the movie that isn't a beauty shot and there is not one thing that a huge amount of attention and thought didn't go into and movies after this are just an enormous disappointment Uh, plot wise appearance wise acting wise it's raised the standards and it's made me really uh, disgusted with most movies so hey Damn you, David Fincher. With your feet on the air, your head on the I gotta say, kudos to Fox. You know, they really did. Yep. They totally backed us. The first time that I saw your first long cut of it or whatever, I, uh, you guys weren't there, Andy was there. And we walked out, we were kind of standing out in the bright sunshine on the Fox lot, and, and neither of us said anything for a while. And the first thing Andy said was, my immediate reaction to that is that the most amazing thing about it is that it ever got made at all. I mean, even with, when this thing came out, and I knew there was going to be flack, and, uh, you know, I had this idea. I mean, you look back at, like, clockwork and these films that are in your favorite stack of, of lasers or DVDs, and what they did opening weekend, it's pretty much par for the course. But I'm still, on the other hand, I had this idea in my head that, that it would find its life now, that, that it, was, it was apropos and it was and people were ready for it. And the thing I always hang on to is when we first sat down with this thing, but you said... You're interested in making films that are going to be around in 20 years, that, that have a life. That, and, uh, I mean, time will tell, but I, I think that's what, exactly what we've done here. Well, it looks like we've reached the end of another one, Tim. Yeah, we did. We did that. We did it all. We're going to close it out with uh, one frame picture of a dick on this episode. <laughs> it's going to be Derek's, not mine. That, Tim, that's toxic masculinity. You just stop <laughs> right. it, Tim. They're Jeez. not even going to know they see it. Right. Well, I guess on that note, 
Let's uh, end the transmission by hitting this fucking button here. Wow. All right, then. All right, Space Monkey's out. <laughs> Did you know that urine is sterile? You can drink it. I don't know where that came from. <laughs>